Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You are unmuted. That's all good. That's all done now. And uh, that is up and running. Recorded. Recorded. And available. See, the deal is I have to uh, have to change it every four hours. That's why we have two different, you know, uh, codes. Same number, but two different codes because they only last for, you know, four hours at a time. It's not that big of a deal, but I got to remember to do it. All right, so uh, here's the big deal in South Carolina. Oh, yes, I know what we'll do. Uh, gee, nine people get shot in a church, and what's the answer? Take down the Confederate flag. That's what it is. There you go. There's the answer to all of it. Yeah, that makes a big difference. you got to be kidding. I mean, really. Uh, you know, it's... Yeah, anyway, so that's what's going on there. Now, am I am I saying, well, this was their whole uh, you know, their whole idea was to, you know, create the shooting? Uh, I don't know, but they're certainly taking advantage of it. And there are people in this country that just really really hate that flag and and mostly it's because they're ignorant. Okay. They don't know anything about it except uh, what they've been told. And, oh, it's a symbol of slavery. You know, somebody pointed out in the chat room earlier, really? Like, uh, you mean the North didn't have any slaves? Really? Oh, well, did we call them slaves or were they just indentured servants? You know, I mean, come on. There's been slavery all over the world at different periods of time. You know, and it doesn't matter if you're white or black or whoever, man. I mean, chances are you look back far enough, you know, somebody in your family somewhere sometime was a slave. Anyway, here we go. The Senate is set to vote on the Trade Promotion Authority legislation the House passed last week that gives President Obama fast-track trade authority to finalize his trade negotiations without uh, congressional amendments or debate. Right. Man, under fast-track authority, and really, folks, this is, uh, you know, this is a bogus name, fast-track. Really what it is is a secret track. Because the whole thing is, they just want to ram it through before anybody gets a chance to look at it. And why? Well, they've already admitted why. Because if the American people got to find out what was in this catastrophe, they'd never go for it. Oh, gee, let's see. Uh, Can we lose some more jobs? Can we have more unemployment? Can we have less manufacturing? Can we have less, you know, livable wage jobs? Oh, boy, yeah, let's sign up for that. Nobody's going to do that. 
Nobody's going to support anything like that, and that's exactly what this is going to bring. Oh, besides, hey, maybe you don't care about working. Maybe your thing is uh, you'd like to have your GMO food labeled, so you'd, you'd like to know, am I eating food or am I eating a genetically modified organism? Really? Well, you can forget about it, okay? Forget about it. Because that's one of the big things about this. This is not a trade package, folks. This is a corporate giveaway. I mean, the corporations get everything they want out of it. I mean, they really begin to start running the world. I mean, okay, like they don't already, but it's getting worse. Because that's one of the things. Oh, not only, you know... They're planning on, uh, you know, shoving this genetically modified organisms down everybody's throat. Other countries are not going to be allowed to say, no, we don't want that garbage in our country. Oh, too bad. You signed a trade deal. You got to let it in. So this isn't just a bad deal for us. This is a bad deal all the way around. Just like NAFTA. You know, people at first were complaining, going, well, you know, them darn Mexicans are going to take all our jobs, and they're going to get all of everything, and we're going to get nothing. Well, guess what? We all got nothing. NAFTA was just as devastating for Mexican workers as it was American workers. Mexico didn't do any good out of that, out of that deal. You know, and okay, so... Uh, the World Trade Organization comes in, and China, oh boy, look at how big... Yeah, well, guess what? The Chinese people, they're not, uh, you know, they're not doing so great. They're jumping off of roofs at, uh, at lunchtime. Their jobs are so happy. Okay, they got to put nets around their buildings so people don't jump off the roof during lunch. How good of a job is that? I don't know. It seems to be a symptom of an unhappy worker when they jump off the roof at lunchtime. So, I don't know. (laughs) Does that sound like a good time to you? So, let's see here. The Chinese people didn't benefit over the World Trade uh, Organization. The, The Mexican people didn't benefit off of NAFTA. We certainly haven't benefited off of NAFTA. So, who is benefiting? Ah, the same ones that are benefiting from this train wreck. The corporations, the multinational corporations, that's who. That's who. And you know what? You got John Bonehead and the rest of these Republicans in there that sat out there and said, hey, elect us, elect us, and we will stop Obama's agenda. And you know what? For the most part, people believe them. They extended their control of the House of Representatives. They gained a majority in the Senate. And what good has it done us, folks? What good has it done us, really? What, what Obama agenda have they stopped? What have they even slowed down? Uh, immigration? You know, the uh, I got a pen and I got a piece of paper and I'll just start writing laws. Uh, hey, Says, screw the laws of the day. I'm giving an executive order. Let them all in. Let them all in. Just, just ignore the law. By the way, yeah, uh, I'm directing the federal agencies not to enforce the law. Folks, that's a criminal act. Okay, he's in direct violation of his oath of office because that's one of the things faithfully execute the laws of this nation. 
Okay, that is a specific, you know, something that he took an oath to. What have the Republicans done? I'll tell you what they're doing. Oh, let's go back to the trade deal. Hmm? You know what else is in the trade deal? This isn't a trade deal, folks. It's it's a corporate giveaway deal, but we'll call it a trade deal. How about immigration? Right? Okay. So let's say you're a corporation. Hmm? And you say, well, you know what? I think if I fired everybody working here, and I'm talking, you know, decent paid, well-educated workers, let's say, oh... IT workers. And I'm using this as an example because, well, this isn't a theory. This has already happened in California, the power company in California, because this is exactly what they did. And this is what's in this trade pack. So you're a corporation and you're looking at your bottom line and you're going, man, you know what? We, we really need to make more profit because our lazy stockholders want to sit around collecting dividend checks uh, every month and uh, produce nothing. So hmm, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What to do? What to do? Where to cut? I know. Let's fire all the American workers. You know, all those kids that went to college, that got $100,000 in debt. But they figure, hey, what the heck? It's an investment in my future because I can go get a decent plan, you know, dollars $60,000, $80,000 a year job. I can pay this thing off in a few years. No big deal. Except now the corporation decides, hey, you know what we could do? We could hire a bunch of Indians from India, and uh, they're well-educated, they know this stuff, and and they'll work for half as much. And not only that, no, not only that, we've got, you know, we don't have to pay them as much, and we got ourselves what amounts to an indentured servant. Oh, yeah, this is going to be great, because you see, once they get over here, and we pay them half as much as we were paying the American workers, then we can say, well, uh, you know what, I know uh, you figured you'd be working eight hours a day. Well, you're going to be working ten hours a day, six days a week. And, you know, if you don't like it, if you want to complain about it, uh, we'll just fire you, and then you can go back off to India, and we'll just replace you with somebody else. Because uh, if you don't have a job, you don't have a visa. And guess what? Now, the way things are, the government decides, well, okay, uh, we're going to let this many H-1B visas, uh, you know, this year, and that's what we're going to do. Oh, well, guess what? Under the trade package, no more. Uh Uh-uh. Now it's going to be up to the corporations. They're going to decide. They're going to tell the government, look, we need this many visas. Print them up, boy. And that's what it's going to be. And... Hey, there goes all your jobs. And they're not even being outsourced. You're just being kicked to the curb. That's another little thing in this deal. Oh, the deal that the Republicans are pushing. You know, the same Republicans that said they were going to stop this Obama agenda? Like, oh, I see the answer to illegal immigration is to just make it all legal. Yeah, there you go. Stroke of a pen. Let the corporations, if they say they need, then they need. Because after all, hey, we're not running a nation here anymore. We're running a business. And the bottom line is the bottom line. 
yeah, the psychopath thick corporations that, you know, hey, no matter what happens, no matter what we've got to do, we are here for profit and gain, and we don't care if we have to kill everybody to do it. Because, see, this is our our deal. This is our only uh, thing, and, and we're legally bound. You know that corporations are legally bound to their stockholders to maximize profits? Yeah. Well, all right, here we go. Under fast-track trade authority, Congress only gets an up-or-down vote on the final negotiation. And it's not part of the negotiation process. Gee, I wonder if they're even going to be allowed to read it before they vote up or down. Or will it be another one of those, well, you can find out what's in it after you pass it. Which sounds crazy, but that's what they did with Obamacare. Which, of course, is one of the other things that the Republicans had said, oh, you elect us and we'll put a stop to this. How's that going? I'll tell you how it's going. The Supreme Court may rule, if they if they can read the law at all, and rule that, hey, guess what? If you're on a federal, uh, you know, one of the federal uh, marketplaces to where you buy your insurance, you're not getting any subsidies because those only apply to state-run exchanges. Well, guess what? And the Republicans know that the the Supreme Court rightfully should rule this way because it's what the law says, and also it was the intention of Congress. See, they want to admit it now. Okay, see, they don't want to admit that this is exactly what they wanted to do because, you see, they look like morons because it backfired. This was just a simple, they do this all the time. The U.S. Congress comes up with an idea, it wants all the states to do, and it says, all right, we want you to do this, but, you know, the Supreme Court's already ruled in U.S. versus uh, New York that, hey, you can't just march around to the states and tell them how it's going to be and what they're going to do. However, you can bribe them. So this is what they do. They go in there and they say, hey, uh, we'd really like you to do this. And if you do, we got this big bag of money over here. And if you don't, well, we got this big bag of rocks over here. So they figure, wait, you know, the states will go along for the big bag of money, right? Well, usually they do, but this time they didn't. And look, I don't know what's so darn hard about putting together a website, but apparently it's impossible. I mean, the state of Oregon couldn't do it. Oh, they, what, $300 million or something? They wasted? No, no website, nothing, man. They just couldn't get it done, but they sure could spend that money. And other states in the same boat. I really don't get what's so hard about it. I mean, you've got, you've got places out here that, hey, you can book a flight, you can get a hotel, you can rent a car, you know, you can even buy tickets to movies and stuff while on your trip. And you can do it all in one-stop shopping. But they can't manage to get a, a site together to buy some health insurance? Really? How hard is this? I mean, honestly, folks, you know, they should, I mean, uh, it's difficult for me to believe. It really is. Now, you know, granted, I'm no super web master or anything, but I built websites, and, you know, uh, it just doesn't seem all that difficult. 
But it's impossible, and it costs lots of money, millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars wasted. So now, the states just figured, well, we'll just, hey, all our people go on a federal uh, thing. Well, you see, the whole thing was, the Congress was trying to force the states into doing their own exchanges, or your people won't get subsidies. And they figure, well, the angry mobs will burn down the capitals if you don't do this. <laughs> well, guess that didn't happen. No, it didn't happen because Obama broke the law. He said, uh, hey, uh, well, just give everybody the uh, subsidies. Well, Supreme Court's going to rule on that, but you know what? Guess what? John Bonehead, oh yeah, he's out there telling us, oh well, you know, we've got to come up with a way, get this, to save Obamacare if the court rules that way. Wait a minute, aren't these the Republicans that said, uh, if you elect us, we're going to put an end to his agenda? You know, illegal immigration and Obamacare, and, and they want to save Obamacare? And they want to write a trade package that basically gives the corporations control over, oh, it won't be illegal immigration anymore. It'll all be legal. But you know what? They will legally be giving your jobs to other people. And I'm not talking about ditch-digging jobs or, oh, just picking the fruit or doing the jobs Americans won't do. No, 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 no. I'm talking about the jobs that your kids have gotten into debt to go to college to learn how to do. Yeah, well, they're not going to be there. You're just going to send your kid off to college, get fifty to $100,000 in debt, and then have no job to get out to. Oh, except, well, maybe you could work at McDonald's. And do you know a student loan? It's just, uh, it, you don't get out of it. Oh, no, 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 no. You can't get anything if you don't pay your student loan anywhere. No, no nothing, man. And they'll lock you up. Mm-hmm. All right, anyway, the legislation passed the House because it did not contain TAA. That is the Trade Adjustment Assistance. So, guess what? Oh, they call it here. It's a welfare program for displaced workers affected by trade deals. Yeah. Well, they took that out. Yeah, that's out. So now you don't get any. You don't get any uh, if you're a displaced worker. Too bad. The Republicans fixed that for you in the House. Man, the White House 2015 budget also didn't include TAA in its, uh, as a standalone program, as President of Americans for Limited Government Rick Manning noted. Instead, TAA was folded into a broader defined worker training program. Killing trade adjustment assistance, a welfare program that not even President Obama wants, would at least be a small consolation prize in the wake of the fast-track vote, Manning told Breitbart News. Those supporting the fast-track repeatedly asserted the economic benefits of what they called free trade. We are urging them to hold true to their convictions and reject continuing the welfare program set up as a way to attract Democrat votes for trade deals. Well, now, wait a minute. So, let's see. We're going to take away all your jobs, and we know we are, and that's why we had this assistance program, but now we're going to take that out. So you get nothing. Wow, this is getting better and better, isn't it? Manning added, 
Since House Democrats voted in sufficient numbers for a standalone fast-track bill, there's simply no reason for House Republicans to give them a TAA program that, neither, that they neither demanded nor wanted. Americans for Limited Government is encouraging the Senate to vote down TPA on Tuesday due to more information coming out about Obama's current trade negotiations, such as the fact that TISA contains language that could alter current U.S. immigration law. Oh, really? And also due to the fact that it's been reported there is a living agreement provision with within TPP, where additional countries can be added to the finalized trade deal without Senate approval. Hello, China. See, China's been left out of this deal because they're going to let them in through the back door once they get this, if, if they get this. Heritage Action is also calling for the Senate to vote down TPA, adding it will include uh, it as a key vote on its legislative scorecard. Here's their position. While the bill does not contain the ineffective trade adjustment assistance program, Republican leaders made clear in a joint statement that they will ensure the president can sign TAA into law. They even acknowledged it's a little bit of a high-wire act and that everybody knows we can't have TPA without TAA, so we've got to get it passed. In addition to procedural gimmickry, the underlying substance has gotten worse. At the behest of Nazi Pelosi and John Bonehead, they abandoned the Senate-passed bill to use Medicare savings to pay for the renewal of TAA. The new pay-for-it included in H.R. 1295, which the Senate will also consider this week, increases revenue by raising certain tax penalties. New spending should not be offset by new revenues. Over the past month, the congressional process has swamped, has spawned a special interest boondoggle that does more to advance big government than promote the virtues of free trade. There are no virtues to free trade, folks. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it doesn't work for anybody except the big corporations. I mean, really, we got to start getting this into our head and start understanding that, look, man, they can say free this and free that all they want, but it's not helping anyone except the big corporations. And do they really need more help? I mean, honestly. You know, everybody else in this country is losing their jobs and going broke and getting further in debt, but the corporations just are doing great, man. They're just sucking it up. Haven't they got enough? Apparently not. But hey, at least, uh, you know, the governor of South Carolina is jumping into action and getting that, that, that Confederate flag out of there. Boy, yeah, ooh, that's going to be a good thing. Hmm. Anyway, we're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a bit. <laughs>
denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System.
All right. We're back. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is the 22nd of June, 2015. It's about 842 and a half out here. Anyhow, uh, let's see here. Uh, well, I'll give you the call number and all that and give uh, everybody a chance in the chat room to uh, get their last guesses in. Anyhow... 800-932-1980. That's the call-in number, and it is toll-free. 800-932-1980. Plus, that chat room I was talking about, theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. And you can, uh, you'll can you see the chat link. You click on it, you go in there, and you'll be able to participate and just chat with the other folks in there. All right, so... All right, see what happens when I give them a little extra time. They go ahead and get it. Well, they got one of them, but not the other, okay? The first song was Too Much to Lose by the Kentucky Headhunters. And the second one there is the Ozark Mountain Daredevils. And uh, the room did get that, so we're tied. So there you have it. That's how you, you know, that's it. I play the music, you guess the uh, band, and, uh, you know, there's no prizes, so. <laughs> and, hey, there's no punishment for getting it wrong, either. Okay, oh, yes, Yahoo Instant Messenger, if you'd like, you can uh, directly contact me. The screen name is ABRN Talk. All right. All right. So, there you have it. Uh, Okay, let's get to some stuff here. Let's see, let's see, let's see. Now, here, yeah. All right. Walmart. Oh, yeah, they're jumping on the bandwagon. The country's largest retailer will remove all Confederate flag merchandise from its stores, the company told CNN Monday. The announcement is the latest indication that the flag, a symbol of uh, the slave-holding South, has become toxic in the aftermath of a shooting last week at a historic African-American church in Charleston, South Carolina. Governor Nikki Haley announced in a Monday afternoon news conference that she supports removing the Confederate flag from the state capitol grounds. Walmart.com currently carries the Confederate flag, as well as attire featuring the flag's design, such as t-shirts, belts, and, and belt buckles. We never want to offend anyone with the products that we offer. We have taken steps to remove all items promoting the Confederate flag from our assortment, whether in our stores or on our website, said Walmart spokesman Brian Nick. We have a process in place to help lead us to the right decisions when it comes to merchandise we sell. Still, at times, items make their way into our assortment improperly. This was one of those instances. You know, okay, you know what? I think I'm going to go next time I'm at Walmart, and I am going to make a list of all the products they have that offend me. Because 
I can see lots of them. I saw one just the other day. Yeah, uh, Hannah Montana. Yeah, that offends me. You know, uh, I don't think little little I don't think little girls should be uh, having prostitutes. Uh, you know, as their role models. I, I'm offended by that. Oh, and I bet I can find a whole lot more that offends me at Walmart. So, hey, start making a list, folks, because, you know, Walmart said they don't ever want to sell anything that offends anybody. We never want to offend anyone with the products that we offer. Okay, good. You know what? You know what else I'm offended by? I'm offended by an American flag made in some Chinese sweatshop. I'm offended by that. Start writing a list, folks. Send it to Walmart. See if they're liars, because I guarantee you they are. They don't care what you think. They don't care what you're offended by. You know what I say? I, just like all these stores, you want to support, okay, you want to support the black community? Fine. Let them pay for your bills. Let them do all the shopping at Walmart. You want to you support homosexuals? Good. Let them buy your stuff. Man, you know, (laughs) and who got on this thing? So, okay, a a deranged kid who thinks he's a white supremacist goes into a black church, all tanked up on uh, psychotropic drugs, by the way, Shoots up the place, kills nine people, and all of a sudden, how does this turn into get rid of the Confederate flag? I, I, I mean, really. Look, shouldn't we be more like, hey, you know what? We need to get these pharmaceuticals, and we need to start holding them responsible, because every time there's a shooting, these pharmaceuticals are involved. But no, 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 not a word about, no, we're not going to do anything about the pharmaceuticals. One more kid goes off the deep end because he's been put on these drugs. And then all of a sudden, oh, we got to get rid of the, we got to get rid of the uh, flag. Because it's the flag. It's not the pharmaceuticals. No, 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 no. It's the flag. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway. You know, it, it's just, I, I don't get, I, I really don't get the, uh, I don't get the the correlation here between the, the Confederate flag. Have these people just been waiting for something to happen that they can get rid of that? Uh, is, why is that such a bad symbol for them? Is it because it's the last reminder of resistance against the federal government? Is that it? Is that what it is? Because it's got nothing to do with racism. We have a black president for crying out loud. And he didn't get elected by blacks. He got elected by whites. Because sorry, there's not enough of you to get a president elected. Just like there's not enough of you to support Walmart. But, of course, it doesn't matter because people will still keep running into Walmart. Hey, I do it myself. You know, I try to limit my purchases. You know, I really, really try not to buy any food there because, I don't know, I just don't trust Walmart. 
with stuff I eat. I, I don't much trust them with anything, but I mean, you know, if I'm going to be eating something, uh, I'd prefer it not come from Walmart. And that's not to say, you know, oh, well, some other grocery store is better. But, uh, you know. <laughs> anyway, it, it's just, it, it, you know, and somebody in the chat room Stupid, unhistorical idiots. The Confederacy is not about slavery, and that's absolutely true. You know, slavery was just an issue, a side issue. I mean, even, oh, gosh, who was it? I think it was Grant. Ulysses Grant S. Grant. I think he, I think it was his quote that he said, hey, if I thought this war was about slavery, I'd be on the other side. You know, this is not about slavery. It's about states' rights. And they have tried, you know, their very best to conceal that from the American people because that's really what it was about. States' rights. It was about, look, we were sovereign states and we agreed to work together. We agreed to this compact. And now you have become a tyrant in Washington, D.C., and we want out. Oh no. Nobody leaves here. Mm-mm. Oh no. Once you once you you know, this is the <laughs> this is really the United States government's been their idea all along, man. No 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 no. Once you make a deal with us, that's it. Nobody leaves. Nobody retires the family. I mean that's how they run it. Now we have Cornell West. I don't even know who he is. But he says uh, we have the first niggerized president. Now, hey, don't get mad at me. I'm reading this right off of Drudge. Right here on the front page. Niggerized. Mm-hmm. But he goes on and on and, and says that, oh, yeah, you know what that means? You might agree with him and say, oh, yeah, that sounds about right. But no, not when you uh, actually read what he has to say. He says that, oh, Obama needs to get out there and more strongly talk against white supremacy. Yeah, like white supremacy is a big, bad deal. You know, this, this I, I, I don't know. I lean towards conspiracy theory. And that doesn't mean it's always right. But gosh, you know, I get these. I am on the email list for the Southern Poverty Law Center. Because I like to see what kind of tripe they're putting out. And they send one every every week or so. And it's just enough to make you really, you know, <laughs> unhappy. Let me tell you. Because they are such lion pukes, it's just not even funny. But the thing is... I read their stuff. I look at what the news is doing on, and I and it just seems like they've they've either look, either they brainwashed this kid into going in there and shooting at uh, you know, the pastor slash what state senator, <laughs> you know, either they did this or they are. 
I got to say, they're pretty sharp, man, for when things happen. I mean, they got the spin doctors out there. I mean, they got to get out there like 30 seconds after it's done going, okay, man, how are we going to spin this? I know. Let's, hey, yeah, white supremacy, and uh, let's, uh, let's get rid of the Confederate flag, and uh, we'll, we'll get with Walmart. We'll, all within a couple of days, you got a governor kowtowing and saying, oh, yeah, let's get it out of here. You got Walmart, a major corporation, what, just deciding like that, get rid of the Confederate flags that we've been selling in here? I mean, it's almost as though they had this planned ahead of time, folks. How can they move so fast? I mean, it takes these corporations and this government years to do anything. And now all of a sudden, boom, we're all jumping into action. And white supremacy is a big deal now. Really? We got a black president. Did I, did I re, do I have to remind you all that? Oh, I guess that doesn't count. I guess that doesn't count. And, you know, to, to have this idea that, well, blacks voted Obama in there. Oh, I'm sure every black in America voted for Obama. Because you really are just that uneducated, which really isn't your fault. But hey, it is what it is. But really, you got to be stupid. Has ha, hey, how's this working out? Has Obama done any good for you? You know what, people. Ronald Reagan did more for the black community than than Obama has. I mean, really, Obama's broken everything in this country, and when you're on the lower end of everything, when things get broken. You're the first one to feel it. Anyway. The fact of the matter is, what? Blacks in America, what are they, 14% of the population? And, uh, you know, that's men, women, and children. And then let's figure... Half of that's going to vote. Not even, but let's say half. So what is that? 7%? Really? Uh, You're not electing anybody with 7%. So, gee, who else voted? Oh, yeah, 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 that's right. Whites. So where's all this white supremacy? You know, look, man, nobody cares well, okay, some people care. I, you know, when I say nobody, yeah, it's always wrong when I say nobody. But look, I don't think there's that many people that really care what color Obama is at this point. Oh, sure, maybe at first people said, oh, isn't that novel? Let's have a black president. Won't that be fun? Okay. And some people said, hey, I wouldn't vote for him because he's black and I don't want any black guy in the, you know, whatever. Okay, great. But really now, after about seven years of this nonsense, do do you really think anybody cares what color he is? He is a communist traitor. He's a criminal. It doesn't matter what color he is at this point. Come on now. We have to all get get on board with this and see. No, 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 no. See, he's a criminal. I don't care if you're a black, white, Hispanic, whoever you are. You've got to recognize this guy as the criminal that he is. Every day he commits treason. That's what I'm concerned with. I don't care what color he is. 
It's the treason and the criminality. You know, that, that I'm a little more concerned with that. Man. <laughs> eh. Anyway. Now here's something else. The chairman of the House Intelligence Committee warns that America is dealing with the highest threat level we have ever faced in this country. Really? What the heck? Where'd that come from? Oh, wait. Is it all the white supremacists with their flags? Is that what was? Is that the big worry? Let's read on. Representative Devin Nunes, a Republican from California, told CBS Face the Nation on Sunday that the threat is coming from the radicalization of young people and foreign fighters heading to Iraq and Syria to join terror groups. They're very good at communicating through separate avenues where it's difficult to track, Nunes said. That's why when you get a young person who is willing to get into these chat rooms, Go on the internet and get radicalized. It's something we are not only unprepared for, we're also not used to this. We're not used to this in this country. Ooh, several Americans across the U.S. have been arrested and charged recently with being ISIS sympathizers. (gasps) Ooh, so now, if you're sympathizing... This is the crime now. Oh, boy, this is getting good. This is, gee. Hey, hey, let's look forward to all the loyal... Hey, yeah, the loyalty tests. Let's get those going, hmm? (laughs) Man, and, and you know, you're worried about one kid shooting up a black church? Yeah, well. I wonder what internet chat room he got radicalized in. I mean, it's just insane. It's insane, folks. People are blaming chat rooms on joining ISIS. What kind of an idiot goes onto a chat room and then says, "Okay, hey, sign me up, man. Off to uh, you know Syria I go. Yeah, there you go. Because I saw it in a chat room." Oh man, I, I don't think chat rooms are the problem. I think it's too many stupid people. Oh well. Anyway. I'll be back here in a few minutes. We'll have Dean Lauren from New York City. Stay right where you're at if you can. And if not, thanks for listening. Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. 
Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. Unemployment insurance running out, jobs leaving the country. Many people cannot afford to eat or keep a roof over their head. Too many can do neither. Messiah's Branch has a mission church in Wichita, Kansas that helps the victims of this banker's economy, the American people, your neighbors. The mission is the last hope for so many Americans. We need your help to lift up the poorest of the poor. These are men, women, and children who once had homes, now in the street. They all need what you need. First aid, beds, food, clothing, and so on. You can send a monetary gift or a box of necessities to 230 West 4th Street, Florence, Kansas, 66851. Or donate online by going to wichitahomeless.com or simply call 
All right, welcome back to those of you joining from the first hour. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Steffen. Those of you just joining us, welcome. This is the second hour on Monday nights. It's about eight minutes after 9 p.m. Pacific time. You can call in 800-932-1980. 800-932-1980. That's toll-free. You can get on the air you can also participate in the chat room or just chat with the other folks in there. It's theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. You'll see the chat link. It's the blue letters that say chat. Click on that, and there you go. And you can also message me privately or just you, me, and the NSA uh, on Yahoo Instant Messenger. The chat, uh, the uh, screen name is AVRN Talk. Okay, so you can do that. And those are the ways to uh, participate in the show. All right, let's see. The 9 o'clock hour, what do we do? Oh, yes, that's right. We have our co-host coming to us live from New York City and... He is coming to us from the future, because it is tomorrow over there. Welcome, Dean. Well, thank you, Frank. Another rousing Quonset hut. Let's torch it with thermite <laughs> to the ground. And for all those people that are instant messaging Frank on the Yahoo, it's not only the NSA, but it's also the rogue army intelligence that's listening to you. Ah, Okay. So, uh, unfortunately, the last week's show didn't get up until tonight. So, um, there were some great stories last week that we covered, which were nowhere nearly covered in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or anybody. But we'll briefly touch on them tonight. But I want to start off tonight's show with the rogue army intelligence. And that I just happen to have a newspaper in front of me. And it is from the New York Times, Saturday, November 4th, 1972. And the subject of the matter is that Nixon is getting information on George McGovern's uh, confidential plan to, you know, for president, the election, which takes place the following Tuesday. But, and also the, um, the... Kissinger-Nixon peace talks with North Vietnam after they bombed the hell, ordered the bombing of Cambodia by, uh, I forgot this uh, Air Force general who they had court-martialed conveniently to cover him up. But there on page 14, we see Teddy Kennedy. Now, Ted Kennedy is waving. 1972 campaign. He's predicting health insurance will pass. Senator Edward M. Kennedy campaigning for Senator George McGovern in Miami Beach. Speaking before 2,000 members of the American Association of Medical Colleges later in the day, he said that he would introduce a bill for comprehensive national health insurance in Congress in 1973 together with Representative Wilbur Mills of Arkansas. Now, if you all remember, Wilbur Mills drove his 
convertible into the tidal basin with Fanny, the stripper. And they had big pictures of Wilbur Mills being hauled out of the duck muck with Fanny, what's her name, <coughs> the stripper. So, Frank, do you remember uh, where the Obamacare was originally passed? Massachusetts, I believe. I think it was. By by who? Oh, I don't... Uh... It was Mitt Romney. And oh, it was yes, by that's right. Alec. That's right. It was written by Alec. It's all coming back to me now. But, yeah, like a bad song. And... What I want you to remember is that who was the first person, major person, who endorsed Obama? Hmm. Uh, I don't know. Ted Kennedy. Well, he was still... Oh, that's right. He was still alive then. And he was the first major person to endorse Obama. And so now do you understand what was the price of that endorsement? Passing... The National Health Care Plan that Ted Kennedy tried to introduce in 1972 and 3. So now we know who's behind the National Health Care Plan, Frank. Massachusetts. Yeah, you know, that, that Massachusetts keeps popping up like a really bad penny. Right. So I, I want to, uh, I sent you some emails, Frank. Yep. Now, if you go into that first email where I have the music, you're going to see this Solomon link or, or document. And when you open that up, you're going to see that I delivered to the uh, William uh, Levinson. He is the Secretary of the Health and Human Services. And in that, <clears throat> I'm telling him that Michael Cardoza, former U.S. attorney, has actually gone in and accessed the federal Medicaid databases in D.C. and deleted the student records to hide the fraud. And you'll see on the first page, Solomon, uh, like if I open this up now, let me just go through and I'll open yeah, it. Yeah, I've got it right here in front of me. All I'm right, just, I'm uh, going to open it up too. And And so on page two, you're actually going to see Solomon's letter to Donald Trump saying, I worked as slave labor. And he wrote that in 2008. But notice he worked for Trump from 2001 to 2003 while he was in the basement. Who is now? Okay, Phyllis, who is this Solomon Bryant? Solomon Bryant was one of the special ed kids in the Board of Education who was being pawned off as slave labor. Oh, okay. So he never got paid for two years, and so Michael Cardoso is going to delete all of Solomon Bryant's records after 1998 so that there is no record of Solomon Bryant going to school at CUNY High School in Baruch, high, at Baruch College and working as slave labor for Donald Trump. And so basically he's just be deleting him. Yes. Now if you go to this next page, it's got all of the Medicaid printout for Solomon Bryant. Now you see halfway down the page it says Brown Federica, right? PhD? Okay. Well, you see 
that's the the uh, IEP special hearing for Solomon to go back into school. Okay, but that's but look at the date on that, and you're gonna see that it was in 2000. Uh huh. If you go right across, in fact, it was 9/13/2000. Now, if you go to the next page, there is the Medicaid payment, uh, Medicaid for February 3rd, 2000 when he allegedly is not in school. See that Medicaid payment, Stub? Is that the one that says deleted underneath it? Yes. Okay. Well, you see, that's not on the prior page. If you go to 2000, uh, 2, 3, 2000, actually, you don't have that page. Uh, oh, yeah, cycle date. Uh... Let me look at that one more time. Uh, invoice, 2002-3, service date. Uh, let's go to the next one. This is service date. Uh, invoice, this invoice, two, yes, February 3rd, 2000. And if we go to that one page, you don't see any of these. Medicaid. Oh, here it is. Go to, like, uh, keep scrolling down, and you're going to go to the University Eye Center, the ledgers. Okay. And if you go to 2000 or anything past 1998, you're going to see all those dates for Solomon up to 2001. Actually, he attended this University Eye Center until 2008. But you see all those Medicaid slots on 2000 mm-hmm. up to 2001? If you go back to that original Medicaid, uh, like that third page, they're all deleted. You see, that Medicaid printout is the federal printout, Frank. So I wanted you to be able to say to all the people out there, everything's been deleted. <laughs> well, you don't see any university eye. Okay, so okay, so who's doing what here? I mean, who Michael Cardozo is a former US attorney. He is now Corporation Counsel of the City of New York in 2000 to 2012. Okay. He is I we're suing because uh all all the parents and I at Martin Luther King Jr. High School that all the students are getting ripped off. They're being billed for services that were never rendered. The girls are being raped. There's 10,000 unlicensed teachers who are billing for services for special ed in Title I, and they're not even licensed teachers. We're talking $2 billion a year in fraud, Frank. And, and this Cardoza guy, is he, he can't be the only one. Well, you know what, Frank? This is in the state of New York. Okay, and so in order to win the case before Judge Mukasey and Judge Denny Chin, now there's two cases. There's Lauren V. Levy, where I narked on them, the 10,000 unlicensed teachers, and altering the kids' scores. 
to fail them so they could take over the schools and make them charters, common core charters, and sell the real estate. And the other one is Blakely v. Wells. That's with Solomon and all the special ed kids and my kid who was raped by uh, this woman after school teacher in Martin Luther King High School. That was the first school was that was she, taken was over. Was she a real teacher? or did She didn't... She was the after school teacher, and she forged, uh, she wrote notes for Mustafa, my kid, to get out of Spanish class 42 times hmm. so that she could yeah. screw, his, mm-hmm. screw him during class. She's the after school teacher, Frank. She works for Northrop Grumman and James Tish. So, okay. So now, wait a minute. So now you see all this going down, right? Well, yeah, and that's why I'm asking, like, Cardoza couldn't have done this all by himself. There had to be a lot of people knowing about what's going on. So let's go back to that first page. It says June 18th, doesn't it? Let me get back to the first page. That I am... Yeah. Writing this and faxing this to Medicaid IG, the uh, uh, Inspector General Levinson. Okay. And I'm basically telling him that the Washington, D.C. master Medicaid fraud file has been deleted by Michael Cardozo, a former U.S. attorney. Now, on those links I gave you, if you go to the first one under Reuters and you go to that link, you're going to see that, gee, on June 18th, it's reported that Loretta Lynch is now arresting 243 people that have arrested across the country and charged with submitted fake billing for Medicare and Medicaid. It's the largest criminal health care shakedown in history. $712 million. It's really $2 billion. Mm-hmm. Okay, now, isn't it kind of funny that she's actually doing this on the day that I'm... And it's at one one o seven p.m., right? But, Frank, if you go back to that page, I've already started delivering this at 10 a.m. to all the senators, to their chiefs of staff. And, in fact, I'm talking to Senator Johnson of Wisconsin about it, personally. You know, one thing I'm missing here, I mean, I see 46 doctors, medical professionals, uh, you know, nurses, on and on and on. But where are the, uh, you know, where are the government agents? Where are that? Why isn't she arresting any of them? Well, you know what, folks, this is a this is a cover your ass arrest. Hmm. Okay. Oh, look, people who have billed over seven billion. Well, that's two billion in New York. You see, this started in 2007. So you see, when I reported this and I was fired from the teachers now. So I just want to let you know that when you go to Washington, D.C., sometimes you got to go to every chief of staff and sometimes you got to go talk to the senators. Or you get no, no juice. Mm-hmm. Now, I personally talked to McCain. I personally talked to Orrin Hatch. I personally talked to uh, Senator Lankford. I personally talked to uh, Maisie Hirono. I personally spoke with um, Isaacson, Senator Isaacson. 
I personally spoke to Chuck Schumer. That must have been fun. Well, I spoke to him at that uh, that uh, that 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 hearing uh, out, uh, you know, when he was trying to get votes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I personally spoke with his assistant. Sat down for an hour. So, so basically, Lynch is out there, gonna arrest some people, minor people, doctors, nurses, and whatever, and 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 make it look like, oh look, uh, we're really doing something about this when, really. All the people at the top who really did the crimes are are going to skate. And the fact that I reported it in 1998, and that they deleted the records from, listen to this, Frank, they deleted the records from 1999 to 2008. We're in front of Sotomayor. We're... John Roberts is heading up the new teachers project at that time in 2004. You see, they're all going up to the Supreme Court in 2005, 2006. And they're deleting all the records that are going up on appeals so that John Roberts can get on the Supreme Court because he's the one with the phony Teachers licensing program. Now, remember when I told you that Fordham Mm -hmm. has not been filing their ABA certifications? Right, right. Yeah, I found that. I found that really just you know how did how do you get away with that for so long? Did, Did you know that Fordham was the first one to settle with Cuomo for rigging the student loans, predatory student loans? Well, they did that too, huh? And do you know that the student loans are tied to the ABA certifications that are filed? No, I didn't. So that means from 1993 to 2015, all the student loans that are issued by Fordham University School of Law are bogus. They could not have been issued because there was no ABA certification, which is tied to their school loans. Now, do you understand the fraud? Well, part of it, yeah. I mean, this is just fraud on top of fraud on top of fraud on top of fraud. It's it's just strictly, I mean, what it shows me is that this, the government, is just simply a criminal operation. Now, wait a minute. Now, you have to go to the second email document that I gave you, and that was um, the one that's entitled Lauren B. Levy. Okay. So if you click on that one, you're going to see on June 18th, I sent another one to I.G. Levinson. And it's about the illegal higher education fraud by John Roberts of Hogan and Hartson the new Teachers Project at CUNY Research Foundation on June 18th. And again, I'm telling Mr. Levinson that they have been deleting the master file. So when he goes in there to audit New York, he's working off a deleted file. He doesn't have anything. All the fraudulent billing has already been deleted from his file. He has no records. 
to audit. And if you go to the second page, July 7th, 1998, can you read the first sentence, Frank? Of which one here? Uh, from the U.S. Department of Education. Okay, this is to you, dear Mr. Lauren. Yes. Thank you for your letter to Vice President Al Gore and Secretary Riley, wherein you assert that the scores of students taking the April 98 reading tests in New York City were altered. Yes, Frank. They were failing over 300,000 kids who actually passed so that they could fail them and get summer school monies. Ah. And if we go to the second page, the third page, well, look what Rudolph Crew answers me. Mm, let's see. 1999. Here. Read the first one. Uh, July 1st, that one? Yes. Okay, Rudolph Crew. Yeah, I am in receipt of your recent letters and your telephone messages. All of these contain various allegations, including invalid parental elections, alleged embezzlements, cover-ups of incident reports, and collusion among staff. Now go to the last paragraph. I can assure you that I do not tolerate any corruption, malfeasance, or misuse of funds. So, oh, that's enough. Now, go to the next page. All right. Well, let's see here. Nearly 10,000 uncertified teachers fill the city school. Yeah. And who is that man right there? Uh, hey, it's Rudy Crew. And Deputy Judith Rizzo. I reported the 10,000 uncertified teachers, and they freaked. It was 10,040. And he doesn't tolerate corruption, but how did 10,000 teachers sneak by him that aren't teachers? Because the UFT was doing the billing in the district offices. And they were billing these 10,000 sex kittens as having masters. <laughs> so with that, I'd like to dedicate tonight's music to all the special ed kids and all the Title I kids and to all the parents of the special ed and Title I kids who are serving in our armed forces several of whom I talked to down at the U.S. Senate, and they thanked me because many of them grew up in the Bronx during this time period and had their friends failed. And I told them, I said, when you're working next to these men and women out on the battlefield and they're getting letters from home saying their children are failing, explain to them that their children probably are not failing. It's just that they have to steal the schools by failing their kids who are passing. And so with that, I will also dedicate this to a, a heroic white boy who roamed the streets of New York in the 1970s, wanting to be Puerto Rican and black, but alas, could only visit his grandmother on West 72nd Street. Hit it, Frank.
Radio. Muchas gracias. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $140. $49.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System.
This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is the 22nd of June, 2015. It's Monday evening, and it is about 9.43 out here on the Pacific Time Coast. You can call in 800-932-1980. You can go to the chat room, which is located at theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. Ooh, scratchy fader. Anyway... And uh, we have a chat room there. You'll see the link. Click on it. You can uh, participate with the other folks in the chat room. You can also instant message me on Yahoo, Instant Messenger, AVRN Talk. All right. It is Monday night. This is the second hour, and that means we've got Dean Lauren coming to us live from New York City. Welcome back, Dean. Well, thank you, Frank. That was Mariella and Spanglish Fly at the Blue Note live Spang- New York Boogaloo. Spanglish fly. I like yes. that. That that's Yeah, good. yeah, that was for you, Frank, and all <laughs> the kids out there. Well, uh, and, and uh, the second song there was uh I don't see any guess oh yeah, there are a couple of guesses. They're not right. Uh, that was the Kentucky Headhunters with Dumas Walker is the name of the Okay. The, show. the song, I mean. So there you now, go. Frank, we had some New York boogalooga and uh, had some down south uh, stuff. Now, now I just want to put out the word to everybody that WikiLeaks is now dumping Saudi uh, documents from the State Department. They're trying to embarrass uh, King uh, Salman uh, bin Abdulaziz, and uh, you know because last week they the assassination bill failed. That we were gonna a rogue. U.S. Army under Jade Helm was going to assassinate uh, King Salman, and they were going to use, fly all these warthogs over there and stage a coup in Saudi Arabia and put their own person on the throne. You mean like they did in the Ukraine? And they did in Iran. Mm-hmm. So, and we now know that it was France and U.S. rogue army intelligence. So it was France and a rogue U.S. Army intelligence that put the Khomeini on the throne of Iran. So now, folks, I say this because those emails in the State Department of Hillary Clinton are going to drop. They're going to come all out in December, all about Benghazi and all the money she took. Okay, why, why December? Why is that? Because that will be time for a Democratic underdog to take the vote, okay. just like Obama took it from her in December of 2008. Well, that's true. That's true because, you know, uh, people forget, you know, because people don't have very long memories in this country. But Hillary was the, uh, the favorite. favorite. Yeah, she was the favorite, and that didn't work out. Now... I want you to understand, folks, so why I'm in the Senate 
and I'm talking to Senator Johnson from Wisconsin, and I'm talking with the other senators and the chiefs of staff. Every time I look up on the TV, I see Senator McCain and Mitch McConnell on CNN talking about this defense bill that they got to pass, $600 billion worth, policy bill. And I'm thinking, oh, and at the same time, I'm seeing them debate the floor of, of the Senate to get this bill passed. I'm starting to see this North Carolina shoot 'em up church thing. Mm-hmm. And so somebody asked me, and they said, what do you think about this uh, shoot 'em up? And I said, well, I can guarantee you that when the Senate passes the $600 billion defense bill, it won't be on the front page of the New York Times tomorrow. That shooter is going to be on the front page, and they don't want you to see this Senate bill. And in this Senate bill that I got passed, old Senator McCain put, for, put through a whole bunch of warthogs to keep them flying. These are the big transport planes. Now, actually, Frank, a- actually the warthog is the, uh, the A-10, which is... Uh what they've referred to as a tank killer, because it's really an outdated, very slow-moving jet uh, that's got a lot of a lot of firepower. Okay, it's got the big 50 caliber or 20 millimeter uh, cannons on it, and it's it's it spits out some uh, nasty things. But it's really slow, and it 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 can't be. It's outdated, and what they did was in Iraq. See, this used to be a regular fighter. And then you know it's too slow, and and but they retasked it in Iraq because you know Saddam Hussein had a lot of these T seventy tanks from you know and uh, they're pretty much sitting ducks, and they blew them down real a, a whole bunch of them with those warthogs, and uh, that's what that's what they are. They're call they're, they call they refer to them as tank killers. And uh, well, Frank, guess what? The Pentagon don't want them. Well, they're you know they they're they're pushing thirty years old, man. These these Frank, are not new things. Frank, I got news for you. Why would Senator McCain put in a bill specifically flying armament that the U.S. Pentagon has personally told him they don't want? My guess would be because he's got somebody else in mind. To have them. Or he's being paid by a lobbyist. Well, yeah, I don't know. I, you know what? I don't even know if they make those anymore. I, I think they're just maintaining them. Uh, I don't think they're making new warthogs, but I, I don't know who would want, you know, uh, who would profit from that. Unless they're, you know, hey, they they might be, hey, well, yeah, we don't want these. So, you know, once the Pentagon gets them, whether they want them or not, they, I'm sure, can find a way to get rid of them. If nothing else, they can just give them to the National Guard. So the good news, folks, is that President Obama is going to veto this bill. They don't have enough people to override the veto. And what's more is the Senate Democrats are not going to pass any bill that calls for an increase in military budget without an increase in social services. Right. I see Meaning, that. therefore, 
none of the budget is going to be increased. We're going to balance the budget, folks, the way it was originally passed a couple years ago to be balanced under the sequester. Uh All right? No getting around these bills by doing these emergency payments and putting that into the military. No, they agreed to cut many things in their budget. And social services agreed to cut many things in their budget. So, folks, last week we discussed how $8 trillion is missing from the budget from the Defense Department. Now we know at least $4 trillion is missing from social services with $2 billion a year since 1986. So it's pretty much even. We've got about $8 trillion missing from the defense, and we've got about $8 trillion missing from social uh, services, health and social services. We could balance the budget, folks, if we get that money back. And now we know that that money is in secret slush funds in Europe and various 89 countries that Jeb Bush has been visiting, picking up these monies for his PACs. And that his itinerary matches Bush 1, where all the slush funds are. <laughs> so, you know, that was what last week's show was about, folks. That Jade Helm was terminated by a tan man with a lot of oil, known as King Salmon, or actually the crown prince, Merquin. So, you know, folks, we've avoided a coup in Saudi Arabia. Germany collapsed. Deutsche Bank is basically destroyed for rigging the LIBOR rate with the Bundestag. Israel has lost its control so far over all the cellular phone espionage in the America. And by the way, the Swedish firm Ericsson, which is aligned with the Nazis, I can't believe every Jew is not getting up on their chair and shouting that the uh, Swedish secret police and the KGB are now getting the telephone records well, for the you know, United they, States. Yeah, well, you know, they didn't get up on their chairs and squeal when, uh, you know, the uh, Ukrainian government was overthrown and uh, replaced with Nazis. So (laughs) what goes around comes around. So what we're really trying to say, folks, is a lot of stuff's going on right now that should have been in the weekend news. But everybody's talking about this North Carolina. Yeah, there was a shooting, don't you know? What? There was a shooting, don't you know? Unfortunately, there was a defense bill that needed to be discussed in order to budget the uh, balance the budget for Social Security. Now we find out that this entire Obama health care is really Ted Kennedy health care. Mm-hmm. All right. And now we find out that two Supreme Court justices, John Roberts and Sotomayor, were involved in the fraud in the 10,000 unlicensed teachers and the deletion of Medicaid records from the federal master list. Now, folks, when I was down there, all the chiefs of staff turned to me and they said, wait a minute. 
They said, Dean, if they deleted the billing records at the Health and Human Services, that means they also had to delete the billings in the Treasury Department that paid for them. Folks, we're talking about a major crime here. They went into the Treasury Department and also deleted their bills, master bills. Because what happens if uh, IG Levinson calls over to the Treasury and says, you know what, can you give me the year-end 2014? I want to see this um, billing for uh, Solomon Bryant. Well, that's got to be deleted, folks, in the Department of Treasury. Or you're going to get two shortfalls. You're going to get the HHS budget payouts for Medicaid not equaling the Treasury payouts. Got it, Frank? Mm-hmm. So this crime was committed by the FBI NYPD Joint Terrorism Task Force, which was supposedly shut down after Chris Christie narked on them for crossing state lines into New Jersey without telling New Jersey when they were actually fronting security for Al-Qaeda moving drugs into JFK and into New Jersey. This is why they were disbanded, folks. Now they're back bigger and better than before. And it turns out that the guy who was doing this, okay, the 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 actual uh, FBI agent responsible for delete uh, for getting all this information was. Oh, let's see where it is. I think I have it in my other sheet of paper here. FBI. Let's see, where's his name? Uh, I just want to get this before we go off the air. Oh, yes. It was FBI NYPD Joint Terrorism Task Force co-commander Kevin M. Hallinan. H-A-L-L-I-N-A-N. He was working with Velasquez and Jessica Tisch, the daughter of Merrill Tisch and James Tisch. She works at the NYPD in the Joint Terrorism Task Force Department. They were downloading all the codes so that her father, James Tisch, could develop all the public schools into common core private charters and flip them after 22 years into private uh, private ownership. Now, folks, if this started in 1995, Frank, will you add 22 years to 1995, and what do you get? Mm, let's see. 95 uh, would be 2005. Oh, that'd be now. Uh, well, two years from now. That would be 2017. Yeah. So they're looking to flip all these schools, these public schools, into private real estate across the country. And we're, we're okay, where's all the where's all the kids going to go to school? <gasps> well, Frank, who gives a crap about these <laughs> well, inner city kids? Well, yeah, but these I, yeah. black kids. Who cares about these Puerto Rican and Dominicans? Who cares about these Spanish speaking kids? Nobody. 
Certainly not Sotomayor, and God forbid Hogan and Hartson, which is basically this white law firm that is now Hogan and Lovell, which is now Lovell is the biggest British law firm in Europe for defense contracting. So that really means, folks, that the British have taken over the New York, uh, I mean, American schools, public Dean, schools. Dean, I want to ask you something. Now, the Supreme Court's got a case here with uh, Obamacare as far as the uh, the uh, the money that people get, the subsidies. And the subsidies, the way it was written, are only applicable if you're in a state exchange, which most states weren't able to do that. So, you know, they just, Obama just said, oh, well, it counts to the federal. But there's this lawsuit that says, no, no, it's not, because that's not the way it's written, and that was not Congress's intent. How do you think they're going to come down on this? They're going to have to let it flow through, because if not, Obama's going to bust them on the bench, and John Roberts is going to go down for theft, Medicaid theft, and so Tamayor is going to go down for Medicaid theft. Hmm. Okay. So, so they've got a rule that, you know what, it's too big of, it's gone too far. Too big to fail again. No, it's not too big to fail. You let it go too far. The Congress should have acted faster. Well, I agree. I mean, I, I definitely agree with that, but, uh, you know. And there's another thing. So, you know, all these exchanges, that's where you bill this Medicaid fraud. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Dean, folks, we are out of time. Look, so is Sotomayor and John Roberts. Couldn't happen to a nicer couple, but... Uh, we will see you again Let next week. Make you wait Thank you. Thanks for uh, listening. I'll Just see you tomorrow. Stay tuned. We got good stuff coming up. Get down in the county of Kings. Hear that music makes you want to sing, want to sing. Feels like something's in the air. Let the heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. month in three years and while many enjoyed the south and the west have been warning well issued for bermuda and we're going to start feeling the effects along the coastal section but global warming is already the flash flooding and mudslides going to be climate crisis and the economic crisis are intertwined thousands of cities are 
sending a message together that climate change is the issue of our generation. Between 8.30 and 9.30 at night, turn your lights off. You'll be joining me and a billion others against climate change. I'll be saving the planet. What will you be doing? That the legacy of this era that we're living in now is going to be how we responded to this revelation that we're altering the natural systems of our planet. So it's yet another reason why we have to pay attention to stopping this crisis before it really gets out of control. This is, at best, a gesture. This is the religious aspect of climate change, which is you engage in certain ritualistic behaviors to make yourself feel good. One of them is the Earth Hour. Well, these are very you know, self-conscious efforts for people to feel good about themselves. Because they don't want you to know the real sacrifices that shit they want you to make. They want you to think that it's as easy as turning off your lights for just one hour. I believe this legislation has the moral significance equivalent to that of the civil rights legislation of the 1960s. They say it's the most important challenge of our generation. They say the very earth hangs in the balance, and they want us to take action. We're told to replace our light bulbs, to promote electric cars, to make fuel from corn and soybeans, and to change our lifestyles. But will these actions work? When I was a kid, we were afraid to go out of our homes for uh, fear of being burned by acid rain. Then it was the whole no ozone later. And now, I'm told that I can't drive my vehicle because it's killing polar bears. They tell us that the polar bear population is terribly threatened, that polar bears are dying already as a result of climate change. Polar bears are pretty tough, and frankly, polar bears are some of the best swimmers on the planet. And in fact, the polar bear population has never been healthier. It's double what it was in the 1950s. And so when you see pictures of polar bears swimming around, it's because they want to be swimming around. But people don't know that. They use the fact that polar bears are attractive and are charismatic um, to scare people into doing things. There's a real desire to come up with uh, good, scary stories and also, I think, some ideological sympathy with the environmental activist movement. Well, they care more about um, lemurs. They care more about gnats and things that no one's ever heard the name of. Humans are kind of like a blight. We're a cancer. We're the, we're the bad thing. Everything else is pure and good. These environmentalists see the environment as a religion. They don't believe that we can truly get where we need to go without changing how we live, what we do, what we drive, what we eat. Environmental policy so often is about what's good for politicians and less about what's good for the environment. So what they end up doing is falling prey to eco-fads, things that sound good because it's easier to sell and they get the political credit that they want even if ultimately the environment doesn't benefit. Eco-fads feed on fear. Fear of the future, fear that we are destroying our planet, and guilt that each of us is at fault. But ego-fads don't actually address the problem. They are crafted so that environmental activists can take advantage of the issue and earn credibility without actually accomplishing anything. 
Biofuels is another case of where politicians pick and choose technologies, the latest fad, what they think is going to be great today, and then a few years down the road when it doesn't turn out, they simply chuck that overboard and move on to the next eco-fad. Five, ten years ago, you couldn't call yourself an environmentalist without your bottled water in your hand. Now you can't call yourself an environmentalist without your petition to ban bottled water. The same as the DDT story, which has never been covered by the mainstream media here either. When the WHO admitted that they were wrong about that, that they were wrong and that the environmentalists had caused the deaths of over 30 million children. No one says sorry and no one reports it. You know, for politicians especially, the number one priority for them is how can I sell this? How can I take advantage of this? Can I look good? Celebrities and corporations can hop on the bandwagon and improve their image without really making a difference. And politicians can use the issue to slowly bind us in a web of regulation. Climate change is an unambiguous security threat. It could well incite new wars of an old kind over basic resources like food, water, and arable land. Despite being wrong again and again, they don't change their ideology. They don't change their tactics. They simply change the crisis. But we also see eco-catastrophe fads back in the 70s, the late 60s. It was, the population was supposedly running amok. World population was going to deplete all the resources. They were going to get so expensive that civilization would collapse by the end of the century. Right around that time, in 1973, the book Limits to Growth came out. And they were talking back in the 70s, you know, in 10 years we're going to see worldwide famines and the world's going to end. People are going to starve to I was heavily influenced by that. That actually propelled me into my career as a paid environmental activist. But all those forecasts of doom, they were all wrong. What's amazing about people like Paul Ehrlich and President Obama's science advisor are that they don't actually say we were wrong. Um, in fact, Paul Ehrlich gave an interview last year where he said um, that he was more concerned than ever, that he was more convinced that he was right than ever. There's a segment of the population who desperately need to believe that they're killing the planet, and a larger number that need to believe that the planet is dying, who need to maybe find meaning in their lives. So we have these fads that come along, resource depletion, population growth, now it's CO2 and global warming. They all seem to have the same solution. Huge international government control over your economic life. While the debate about the science of climate change rages, even some who believe there is risk from climate change question the policies being considered by politicians. Are we making the right decisions? or simply falling for the latest political fad. The climate change is a perfect scapegoat for environmentalists. They can use that to change the behavior, the lifestyle, and the standard of living of every single citizen on the planet. The Earth has been experiencing a mild warming trend since probably the middle of the 19th century when, when the planet started to come out of the Little Ice Age, which had lasted about three or four hundred years. The effects of this warming have been mild, mostly beneficial, and have caused human beings very little trouble. We have seen a flourishing of humanity. But we also have to look at the benefits of higher global temperatures. A lot of places that weren't arable land before are now going to be. And I think that's important that you need to weigh those costs and benefits. I think that global warming could be a net benefit for the planet, in fact. In fact, I'm fairly convinced that global warming is not an environmental crisis. It is a normal environmental challenge. The really inconvenient truth for Al Gore is that 
Over the last few years, we aren't seeing the global warming that we saw in the 90s. We're actually seeing it cooling. And so in order to still claim the issue, they've had to change the name from global warming to climate change. In the last 15 years, there's been no significant global warming at all. In the last six, seven and a half years, roughly, there's been actual global cooling. Another 15 years of cooling on top of the past 10 might just put a dent in the global warming alarmist bandwagon. There's these labels out there, like carbon footprint, like, you know, this, this whole idea that CO2 is, a, is toxic. We shouldn't be adopting that language. We shouldn't even be dealing with it. We should only deal with the facts. And the facts are not conclusive that there's any danger from increased CO2 levels in the atmosphere. And there is quite a bit of scientific evidence which suggests that the climate sensitivity to CO2 is much lower than is assumed in these United Nations computer predictions. As a longtime air pollution activist, I am thrilled that we have the cleanest air in most cities in this country that we've ever had. So I paid my dues. And I'm very passionate about environmental protection, but what's going on now in most regards is the wrong approach. With trillions of dollars at stake, getting the answers wrong means not only less freedom and prosperity for generations to come, it will mean we still face the problems these policies were meant to address. I am here today to lend my support to what I believe to be one of the most important pieces of legislation ever introduced in the Congress. There are only three things you have to know about cap and trade. It's a tax, it's a tax, it's a tax. Climate change is the latest effort to put prosperity and personal freedom in chains. Climate legislation would create a commodity literally out of thin air to be taxed, gamed, and profited from, all at the expense of the consumer. The commoditization of carbon dioxide and the creation of a cap-and-trade program is the newest in a long line of ecofads. What cap-and-trade really means is a form of rationing of emissions of greenhouse gases. The government's going to pick the total amount that the whole country can put into the air in a given year. They're going to take shares of that and they're going to give them or sell them to people. The next year, you're going to get less. Companies that can't cut their emissions have to buy ration coupons from other companies. This is a scheme that will not reduce emissions. It will transfer wealth from the ratepayer to those who have invested in lobbying operations. Cap and trade will fail. Uh, what you will see is that the CO2 concentration in the atmosphere will continue to rise uh, in a way that is undetectably different than if you didn't have expensive cap and trade. They know what big smokestacks are like. And cap and trade is not about controlling smokestacks. It's about controlling people's lives. And that's wrong. It is a massive energy tax in the sky. And energy is the lifeblood of our economy. It's what fuels everything that we make, everything that we move. We're being told that what we need is more government control of the economy. Uh, and, and we need to move back towards that model of the government telling people how much energy they can use, which is exactly what the Soviet Union did, and which led not only to incredible poverty and low standards of living, but led to this huge environmental horror. It's a disaster, especially for the economy. I mean, you're talking about such a major hit on the manufacturers of America, it will turn the Bush recession into an Obama depression. The reason it doesn't make economic sense is that it's all cost. Unemployment is going to go up, we're going to lose millions of jobs. 
energy costs are going to go up. For an average year that we estimated, a family will pay $800 more per year just in direct energy costs, thousands more in other costs. Spain is a poster child for renewable energy, and Spain has 17.9% unemployment. You lose steel jobs, you lose aluminum jobs, you lose ceramic jobs, you lose glass jobs. We estimate over a million lost jobs, and those are net job losses after the green jobs are taken. I think that there's a lot of people who like to exert control over the economy, control over our lifestyles, that are using the environment and fears of environmental disaster to, uh, to affect that. The largest tax ever imposed on a people, anyone who has a light switch, is going to be affected by this. That's the whole purpose of the exercise. If there is no increase in cost, there's no change in behavior, and there's no reduction in greenhouse gases, and the politicians know that. So when they say, we're not going to raise your energy prices, they're lying. They have to raise your energy prices, otherwise this does no good at all. Under my plan uh, of a cap-and-trade system, electricity rates would necessarily skyrocket. It would cause more economic pain than environmental gain, and I think the environmental gain may be next to, uh, to nothing here. It won't reduce emissions, but again, it's not about emissions and it's not about the climate. This is about energy rationing, and that's what the scheme would do. It's an attack on freedom. The issues run out of control, but it's now about typical money and power politics in Washington. Industries that would normally be negatively affected by this have been bought off and given subsidies and rewards and free permits, so they've bought onto it. While the free market offers our best solutions to environmental challenges, political incentives and pressures can distort the market. In other words, companies are being bought off with promises of political power and financial reward. There's a lot of people, frankly, at the moment making enormous amounts of money. Goldman Sachs is pushing carbon trading because they're going to be the middlemen, they're going to be the marketers, and they're going to make not millions, but billions of dollars out of this. There are also many big companies that think they're going to get rich because this is an energy rationing scheme. There are firms that have products to sell that will only sell if we can drive the price of energy up. But we have bred the gene out of industry to, to win, to respond to bad ideas with anything other than, how can I game this system? Well, industry now is saying, how do I game this system? They're, they're rent-seeking. How do I sell 12 years of my support in return for 12 years of ration coupons? Barack Obama started out saying, we're going to learn from Europe's mistake. Europe's mistake was that they gave out all of the ration coupons for free. We're not going to do that. We're going to make the affected industries bid on the coupons in an auction system. Well, guess what? 85% of the coupons in the first couple of years are going for free to the industries that have the best lobbyists. That is a very dirty game that's being played. If you want to know who would get rich off this bill, just look at who's lobbying for it. The issue is never the issue. This isn't about the climate. Although carbon dioxide is not an actual pollutant, doesn't cause any negative human health effects, and is an essential element of life, Congress is poised to pass misguided and imprudent legislation that will stifle economic recovery and destroy personal freedom. Do you think decisions can be made better by a few self-interested politicians or millions and millions of people, each of whom are making decisions about their best interest in trying to reduce the amount of resources they use and reduce the amount of uh, energy they use? We see people in their backyards inventing things, in their garages inventing things. And why do they do that? 
because they have a capitalistic incentive. Because they know when they come up with that new technology, it's going to make them money and it's going to make the world a better place. And when given a choice between a few and six billion, I will always choose the creativity of the six billion. And there's only one way to engage those people, and that's the free market. There are no finite limits on human ingenuity. That's, that's the ultimate resource. It allows everybody, you know, to work at improving his little corner of the world. And out of that emerges this gigantic overall improvement for the whole world. Environmental quality is a luxury good. You can only afford it if you have money in your pocket. You know, make them rich and they won't cut down the rainforest. Make them rich and they won't pollute and they won't throw their rubbish on the street. Make them rich and they'll want everything to be beautiful. You know, that is a big success story in this country. As we've gotten richer and pollution has gone down. So let's make everybody rich. You're not going to make them rich by creating artificial shortages of energy. So we have the highest environmental quality in the world and we're the richest nation in the world. That is not a coincidence. Wealthier is healthier. Wealthier is cleaner. If we really care about long-term sustainability, only the free market and the creativity and the constant incremental changes in the pressure can solve that, can create true long-term sustainability. People are going into grocery stores and they're buying cleaners that are based off of natural products, not chemical products. The free market is moving us towards what we are demanding. We don't need government regulations for that. The free market takes a long-term mindset. It makes small, incremental changes every single year. So we are you know, 30 to 40% more efficient today in terms of energy per unit of production than we were 25 years ago. An epic battle is brewing in our nation. It's not just about the most prosperous of nations. It's also about the poorest peoples on Earth, for they too will be asked to sacrifice their future. Energy is what many people have called the master resource. And if you control energy, you control everything. Everything we make, use, or do starts with an infusion of energy and requires energy at every step along the way to the point where you use it. If you control that, you control what people do. Is it about taxes and the distribution of wealth? Or is it about freedom, the liberty of a great people, and the standard of living of a nation and the inhabitants of Earth? Is it truly a scientific battle? Increasingly, it appears to be an ideological struggle between forces that see human innovation and progress as unnatural or undesirable, and those that see free markets as the answer. It's about wanting to control people. Let's decide what cars they drive, what refrigerator they buy, where they work, what kind of manufacturers are here in the United States. The biggest enemies of the poor are, are liberal ideologues who think that basket weaving in Africa is a way of life, that think that poverty is a way of life that needs to be preserved. They're the biggest enemies of the poor. And the greatest friend to the poor is capitalism. The greatest friend to the poor is big business, who will go in and treat people with dignity who will not treat people as charity cases, who will give people a job. The free markets polar bear are going to be the thousands of children who are dying because they can't have clean water or a decent education, decent health care. History is going to judge this if this actually happens and does what it will do to our economy. How can a Congress claim to be responsible when it passes something it hasn't even read? How can they claim an issue is important if they haven't even read what they're doing? This is total hypocrisy. Well, the, the motivation for politicians to believe in this should be obvious. Every politician wants to be reelected. And if you're a politician who can 
present himself convincingly as someone who's going to not just serve his constituents, but save the world, doesn't that politician deserve to be reelected? Ultimately, it is not corporations that will pay the price. It's not even government. It's you and I. Most importantly, it's future generations that will be burdened by regulatory chains and saddled with inextinguishable debt. climate-related research than we spend on AIDS. More than we send to the National Cancer Institute. All sorts of cure for cancer we got. Our priorities are skewed. But bizarrely, when an environmentalist is unwell, though, I think you really, I think this is where you see their true colors. When they're unwell, when it's something that actually really involves them, they will not put their child in the hospital that's run by windmills. They will be screaming out for the coal-fired power plant beside the hospital that will guarantee that the lights don't go out during the operation. Governments control money for science. Therefore, they control who gets it and what policies that money drives. It's pure and simple. The environmentalists and all the doomsayers, the entire doomsday industry has become the world's biggest car loss. People just stop paying attention. Good. Lysander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 1. The Constitution has no inherent authority or obligation. It has no authority or obligation at all, unless as a contract between man and man. And it does not so much as even purport to be a contract between persons now existing. It purports, at most, to be only a contract between persons living 80 years ago. This essay was written in 1869. And it can be supposed to have been a contract then only between persons who had already come to years of discretion, so far as to be competent to make reasonable and obligatory contracts. Furthermore, we know, historically, that only a small portion, even of the people then existing, were consulted on the subject, or asked, or permitted, to express either their consent, or dissent in any formal manner. Those persons, if any, who did give their consent formally, are all dead now. Most of them have been dead 40, 50, 60, or 70 years. And the Constitution, so far, was their contract died with them. They had no natural power or right to make it obligatory upon their children. It is not only plainly impossible in the nature of things that they could bind their posterity, but they did not even attempt to bind them. That is to say, the instrument does not purport to be an agreement between anybody but the people then existing, nor does it either expressly or impliedly assert any right, power, or disposition on their part to bind anybody but themselves. Let us see. Its language is, we, the people of the United States, that is, the people then existing in the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. It is plain in the first place that this language as an agreement purports to be only what it at most really was. That is to say, a contract between the people then existing. 
and of necessity binding as a contract only upon those then existing. In the second place, the language neither expresses nor implies that they had any intention or desire, nor that they imagined that they had any right or power to bind their posterity to live under it. It does not say that their posterity will, shall, or must live under it. It only says, in effect, that their hopes and motives in adopting it were that it might prove useful to their posterity as well as to themselves by promoting their union, safety, tranquility, liberty, etc. Suppose an agreement were entered into in this form. We, the people of Boston, agree to maintain a fort on Governor's Island to protect ourselves and our posterity against invasion. This agreement, as an agreement, would clearly bind nobody but the people then existing. Secondly, it would assert no right, power, or disposition on their part to compel their posterity to maintain such a fort. It would only indicate that the supposed welfare of their posterity was one of the motives that induced the original parties to enter into the agreement. When a man, man says he is building a house for himself and his posterity, he does not mean to be understood as saying that he has any thought of binding them nor is it to be inferred that he is so foolish as to imagine that he has any right or power to bind them to live in it. So far as they are concerned, he only means to be understood as saying that his hopes and motives in building it are that they, or at least some of them, may find it for their happiness to live in it. So when a man says he is planting a tree for himself and his posterity, he does not mean to be understood as saying that he has any thought of compelling them nor is it to be inferred that he is such a simpleton as to imagine that he has any right or power to compel them to eat the fruit. So far as they are concerned, he only means to say that his hopes and motives in planting the tree are that its fruit may be agreeable to them. So it was with those who originally adopted the Constitution. Whatever may have been their personal intentions, the legal meaning of their language so far as their posterity was concerned simply was that their hopes and motives in entering into the agreement were that it might prove useful and acceptable to their posterity, that it might promote their union, safety, tranquility, and welfare, and that it might tend to secure to them the blessings of liberty. The language does not assert, nor at all imply, any right, power, or disposition on the part of the original parties to the agreement to compel their posterity to live under it. If they had intended to bind their posterity to live under it, they should have said that their object was not to secure to them the blessings of liberty, but to make them slaves of them. For if their posterity are bound to live under it, they are nothing less than the slaves of their foolish, tyrannical, and dead grandfathers. It cannot be said that the Constitution formed the people of the United States for all time into a corporation. It does not speak of the people as a corporation, but as individuals. A corporation does not describe itself as we, nor as people, nor as ourselves. Nor does a corporation in legal language have any posterity. It supposes itself to have, and speaks of itself as having, perpetual existence as a single individuality. Moreover, no body of men, existing at any one time, have the power to create a perpetual corporation. A corporation can become practically perpetual only by the voluntary accession of new members as the old ones die off. But for this voluntary accession of new members, the corporation necessarily dies with the death of those who originally composed it. Legally speaking, therefore, there is in the Constitution nothing that professes or attempts to bind the posterity of those who established it. If, then, those who established the Constitution had no power to bind and did not attempt to bind their posterity, the question arises whether their posterity have bound themselves. If they have done so, they can have done so 
in only one or both of these two ways. That is to say, by voting and paying taxes. By Sanders Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 2. Let us consider these two matters, voting and tax paying, separately, and first the voting. All the voting that has ever taken place under the Constitution has been of such a kind that it not only did not pledge the whole people to support the Constitution, but it did not even pledge any one of them to do so, as the following considerations show. 1. In the very nature of things, the act of voting could bind nobody but the actual voters. But owing to the property qualifications required, it is probable that, during the first 20 or 30 years under the Constitution, not more than one-tenth, fifteenth, or perhaps twentieth of the whole population, black and white, men, women, and minors, were permitted to vote. Consequently, so far as voting was concerned, not more than one-tenth, fifteenth, or twentieth of those then existing could have incurred any obligation to support the Constitution. At the present time, it is probable that not more than one-sixth of the whole population are permitted to vote. Consequently, so far as voting is concerned, the other five-sixths can have given no pledge that they will support the Constitution. Two. Of the one-sixth that are permitted to vote, probably not more than two-thirds, about one-ninth of the whole population, have usually voted. Many never vote at all. Many vote only once in two, three, five, or ten years in periods of great excitement. No one, by voting, can be said to pledge himself for any longer period than that for which he votes. If, for example, I vote for an officer who is to hold his office for only one year, I cannot be said to have thereby pledged myself to support the government beyond that term. Therefore, on the ground of actual voting, it probably cannot be said that more than one-ninth or one-eighth of the whole population are usually under any pledge to support the Constitution. Three, it cannot be said that by voting a man pledges himself to support the Constitution unless the act of voting be a perfectly voluntary one on his part. Yet the act of voting cannot properly be called a voluntary one on the part of any very large number of persons who do vote. It is rather a measure of necessity imposed upon them by others than by one of their own choice. At this point, I repeat what was said in a former number. In truth, in the case of individuals, their actual voting is not to be taken as proof of consent, even for the time being. On the contrary, it is to be considered that, without his consent having even been asked, a man finds himself environed by a government that he cannot resist, a government that forces him to pay money, render service, and forego the exercise of many of his natural rights under peril of weighty punishments. He sees, too that other men practice this tyranny over him by the use of the ballot. He sees further that, if he will but use the ballot himself, he has some chance of relieving himself from this tyranny of others by subjecting them to his own. In short, he finds himself, without his consent, so situated that, if he use the ballot, he may become a master. If he does not use it, he must become a slave. And as he has no other alternative than these two, in self-defense, he attempts the former. His case is analogous to that of a man who has been forced into battle, where he must either kill others or be killed himself. Because, to save his own life in battle, a man attempts to take the lives of his opponents, it is not to be inferred that the battle is one of his own choosing. Neither in contest with the ballot, which is a mere substitute for a bullet, because, as his only chance at self-preservation, a man uses a ballot, it is not to be inferred that the contest is one into which he voluntarily entered, that he voluntarily set up all his own natural rights as a stake against those of others, to be lost or won by the mere power of numbers. On the contrary, it is to be considered that in an exigency into which he had been forced by others, and in which no other means of self-defense offered, he, as a matter of necessity, used the only one that was left to him. Doubtless, the most miserable of men, under the most oppressive government in the world, if allowed the ballot, would use it, see any chance of thereby ameliorating their condition. But it would not, therefore, be a legitimate inference that the government itself that crushes them was one which they had voluntarily set up or even consented to. Therefore, a man's voting under the Constitution of the United States is not to be taken as evidence that he ever freely assented to the Constitution, even for the time being. 
Consequently, we have no proof that any very large portion, even of the actual voters of the United States, ever really involuntarily consented to the Constitution, even for the time being. Nor can we ever have such proof until every man is left perfectly free to consent or not without thereby subjecting himself or his property to be disturbed or injured by others. As we can have no legal knowledge as to who votes from choice and who from the necessity thus forced upon him, we can have no legal knowledge as to any particular individual that he voted from choice, or, consequently, that by voting he consented or pledged himself to support the government. Legally speaking, therefore, the act of voting utterly fails to pledge any one to support the government fails to prove that the government rests upon the voluntary support of anybody. On general principles of law and reason, it cannot be said that the government has any voluntary supporters at all, till it can be distinctly shown who its voluntary supporters are. 4. As taxation is made compulsory on all, whether they vote or not, a large proportion of those who vote no doubt do so to prevent their own money being used against themselves. When, in fact, they would have gladly abstained from voting if they could thereby have saved themselves from taxation alone, to say nothing of being saved from all the other usurpations and tyrannies of the government. To take a man's property without his consent, and then to infer his consent because he attempts by voting to prevent that property from being used to his injury is a very insufficient proof of his consent to support the Constitution. It is, in fact, no proof at all. As we can have no legal knowledge as to who the particular individuals are, if there are any, who are willing to be taxed for the sake of voting, we can have no legal knowledge that any particular individual consents to be taxed for the sake of voting, or consequently consents to support the Constitution. 5. At nearly all elections, votes are given for various candidates for the same office. Successful candidates cannot properly be said to have voted to sustain the Constitution. They may, with more reason, be supposed to have voted not to support the Constitution, but especially to prevent the tyranny which they anticipate the successful candidate intends to practice upon them on the color of the Constitution, and thereby may reasonably be supposed to have voted against the Constitution itself. This supposition is the more reasonable, inasmuch as such voting is the only mode allowed to them of expressing their dissent to the Constitution. 6. Many votes are usually given for the candidates who have no prospect of success. Those who give such votes may reasonably be supposed to have voted as they did, with a special intention not to support, but to obstruct the execution of the Constitution, and therefore against the Constitution itself. 7. As all the different votes are given secretly by secret ballot, there is no legal means of knowing from the votes themselves who votes for and who against the Constitution. Therefore, voting affords no legal evidence that any particular individual supports the Constitution. And where there can be no legal evidence that any particular individual supports the Constitution, it cannot legally be said that anybody supports it. It is clearly impossible to have any legal proof of the intentions of large numbers of men where there can be no legal proof of the intentions of any particular one of them. 8. There can be no legal proof of any man's intentions in voting. We can only conjecture them. As a conjecture, it is probable that a very large proportion of those who vote do so on this principle, that is to say, that if, by voting, they could but get the government into their own hands or that of their friends and use its powers against their opponents, they would then willingly support the Constitution. But if their opponents are to have the power and use it against them, then they would not willingly support the Constitution. In short, men's voluntary support of the Constitution is doubtless, in most cases, wholly contingent upon the question whether, by means of the Constitution, they can make themselves masters or are to be made slaves. Such contingent consent as that is, in law and reason, no consent at all. 9. As everybody who supports the Constitution by voting, if there are 
or any such, does so secretly by secret ballot, and in a way to avoid all personal responsibility for the act of his agents or representatives, it cannot legally or reasonably be said that anybody at all supports the Constitution by voting. No man can reasonably or legally be said to do such a thing as to assent to or support the Constitution unless he does it openly and in a way to make himself personally responsible for the acts of his agents, so long as they act in the limits of the power he delegates to them. 10. As all voting is secret by secret ballot, and as all secret governments are necessarily only secret bands of robbers, tyrants, and murderers, the general fact that our government is practically carried on by means of such voting only proves that there is among us a secret band of robbers, tyrants, and murderers whose purpose is to rob, enslave, and, so far as necessary to accomplish their purposes, murder the rest of the people. The simple fact of the existence of such a band does nothing towards proving that the people of the United States or any one of them voluntarily supports the Constitution. For all the reasons that have now been given, voting furnishes no legal evidence as to who the particular individuals are, if there are any, who voluntarily support the Constitution. It therefore furnishes no legal evidence that anybody supports it voluntarily. So far, therefore, as voting is concerned, the Constitution, legally speaking, has no supporters at all. The ostensible supporters of the Constitution, like the ostensible supporters of most other governments, are made up of three classes, that is to say, one, knaves who see in the government an instrument which they can use for their own aggrandizement and wealth. Two, dupes, a large class, no doubt, each of whom, because he has allowed one voice out of millions in deciding what he may do with his own person and his own property, and because he is permitted to have the same voice in robbing, enslaving, and murdering others, that others have in robbing, enslaving, and murdering himself, is stupid enough to imagine that he's a free man, a sovereign, that this is a free government, a government of equal rights, the best government on earth, and such like absurdities. 3. A class who have some appreciation of the evils of government, but either do not see how to get rid of them, or do not choose to so far sacrifice their private interests as to give themselves seriously and earnestly to the work of making a change. By Sanders Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 3. Payment of taxes, being compulsory, of course furnishes no evidence that any one voluntarily supports the Constitution. 1. It is true that the theory of our Constitution is that all taxes are paid voluntarily. That our government is a mutual insurance company voluntarily entered into by the people with each other. That each man makes a free and purely voluntary contract with all others who are parties to the Constitution. To pay so much money for so much protection, the same as he does with any other insurance company. And that he's just as free not to be protected and not to pay tax as he is to pay a tax and be protected. But this theory of our government is wholly different from the practical fact. The fact is that the government, like a highwayman, says to a man, your money or your life. And many, if not most, taxes are paid under the compulsion of that threat. The government does not indeed waylay a man in a lonely place, spring upon him from the roadside, and, holding a pistol to his head, proceed to rifle his pockets. But the robbery is nonetheless a robbery on that account, and is far more dastardly and shameful. The highwayman takes solely upon himself the responsibility, danger, and crime of his own act. He does not pretend that he has any rightful claim to your money, or that he intends to use it for your own benefit. He does not pretend to be anything but a robber. He has not required impudence enough to profess to be merely a protector, and that he takes men's money against their will merely to enable him to protect those infatuated travelers who feel perfectly able to protect themselves or who do not appreciate his peculiar system of protection. He is too sensible a man to make such professions as these. Furthermore, having taken your money, he leaves you as you wish him to do. He does not persist in following you on the road against your will, assuming to be your rightful sovereign on account of the protection he has forged you. He does not keep protecting you 
by commanding you to bow down and serve him, by requiring you to do this and forbidding you to do that, by robbing you of more money as often as, he's, as he finds it for his interest or pleasure to do so, and by branding you as a rebel, a traitor, or an enemy to your country, and shooting you down without mercy if you dispute his authority or resist his demands. He is too much of a gentleman to be guilty of such impostures and insults and villainies as these. In short, he does not, in addition to robbing you, attempt to make you either his dupe or his slave. The proceedings of those robbers and murderers who call themselves the government are directly the opposite of these of the single highwaymen. In the first place, they do not, like him, make themselves individually known, or, consequently, take upon themselves personally the responsibility of their acts. On the contrary, they secretly, by secret ballot, designate some one of their number to commit the robbery in their behalf, while they keep themselves practically concealed. They say to the person thus designated, Go to A and B and say to him that the government has need of money to meet the expenses of protecting him and his property. If he presumes to say that he has never contracted with us to protect him and that he wants none of our protection, say to him that that is our business and not his. That we choose to protect him whether he desires us to do so or not and that we demand pay, too, for protecting him. If he dares to inquire who the individuals are, who have thus taken upon themselves the title of the government, and who assume to protect him and demand payment of him, without his having ever made any contract with them, say to him that that, too, is our business, and not his, that we do not choose to make ourselves individually known to him, that we have secretly, by secret ballot, appointed you, our agent, to give him notice of our demands, and, if he complies with them, to give him, in our name, a receipt that will protect him against any similar demand for the present year. If he refuses to comply, seize and sell enough of his property to pay not only our demands, but all of your own expenses and trouble beside. If he resists the seizure of his property, call upon the bystanders to help you. Doubtless some of them will prove to be members of our band. If, in defending his property, he should kill any of our band who are assisting you, capture him at all hazards, charge him, in one of our courts, with murder, Convict him and hang him. If he should call upon his neighbors or any others who, like him, may be disposed to resist our demands, and they should come in large numbers to his assistance, cry out that they are all rebels and traitors, that our country is in danger. Call upon the commander of our hired murderers. Tell him to quell the rebellion and save the country, cost what it may. Tell him to kill all who resist, though they should be hundreds of thousands, and thus strike terror into all others similarly disposed. See that the work of murder is thoroughly done, that we may have no further trouble of this kind hereafter. When these traitors shall have thus been taught our strength and our determination, they will be good, loyal citizens for many years, and pay their taxes without a why or a wherefore. It is under such compulsion as this that taxes, so-called, are paid. And how much proof the payment of taxes affords that the people consent to support the government, it needs a further argument to show. Two, still another reason why the payment of taxes applies implies no consent or pledge to support the government, is that the taxpayer does not know and has no means of knowing who the particular individuals are who compose the government. To him, the government is a myth, an abstraction, an incorporality, with which he can make no contract and to which he can give no consent and make no pledge. He knows it only through its pretended agents. The government itself he never sees. He knows indeed by common report that certain persons of a certain age are permitted to vote, and thus to make themselves parts of, or, if they choose, opponents of, the government for the time being. But who of them do thus vote, and especially how each one votes, whether so as to aid or oppose the government, he does not know. The voting being all done secretly by secret ballot. 
Who, therefore, practically composed the government for the time being, he has no means of knowing. Of course, he can make no contract with them, give them no consent, and make them no pledge. Of necessity, therefore, his paying taxes to them implies, on his part, no contract, consent, or pledge to support them. That is, to support the government or the Constitution. 3. Not knowing who the particular individuals are who call themselves the government, the taxpayer does not know whom he pays his taxes to. All he knows is that a man comes to him representing himself to be an agent of the government. That is, the agent of a secret band of robbers and murderers who have taken to themselves the title of the government and have determined to kill everybody who refuses to give them whatever money they demand. To save his life, he gives up his money to this agent. But as this agent does not make his principles individually known to the taxpayer, the latter, after he has given up his money, knows no more who the government, that is, who, are the, who were the robbers, than he did before. To say, therefore, that by giving up his money to their agent, he entered into a voluntary contract with them, that he pledges himself to obey them, to support them, and to give them whatever money they should demand of him in the future is simply ridiculous. Four, all political power, as it is called, rests practically upon this matter of money. Any number of scoundrels, having money enough to start with, can establish themselves as a government. Because with money, they can hire soldiers, and with soldiers, extort more money, and also compel general obedience to their will. It is with government, as Caesar said it was in war, that money and soldiers mutually support each other. That with money, he could hire soldiers, and with soldiers, extort money. So these villains, who call themselves governments, well understand that their power rests primarily upon money. With money, they can hire soldiers, and with soldiers, extort money. And, when their authority is denied, the first use they always make of money is to hire soldiers to kill or subdue all who refuse them more money. For this reason, whoever desires liberty should understand these vital facts. That is to say, one, that every man who puts money into the hands of a government, so-called, puts into his hands a sword which will be used against himself to extort more money from him and also to keep him in subjection to its arbitrary will. Two, that those who will take his money without his consent in the first place will use it for his further robbery and enslavement if he presumes to resist their demands in the future. 3. That it is a perfect absurdity to suppose that any body of men would ever take a man's money without his consent for any such object as they profess to take it for, that is to say, that of protecting him. For why should they wish to protect him if he does not wish them to do so? To suppose that they would do so is just as absurd as it would be to suppose that they would take his money without his consent for the purpose of buying food or clothing for him when he did not want it. 4. If a man wants protection, he is competent to make his own bargains for it, and nobody has any occasion to rob him in order to protect him against his will. 5. That the only security men can have for their political liberty consists in their keeping their money in their own pockets until they have assurances perfectly satisfactory to themselves, that it will be used as they wish it to be used for their benefit and not for their injury. 6. That no government so-called can reasonably be trusted for a moment or reasonably be supposed to have honest purposes in view any longer than it depends wholly upon voluntary support. These facts are, so, are all so vital and so self-evident that it cannot reasonably be supposed that anyone will voluntarily pay money to a government for the purpose of securing its protection unless he first makes an explicit and purely voluntary contract with it for the, that purpose. It is perfectly evident, therefore, that neither such voting nor such payment of taxes, as usually takes place, proves anybody's consent or obligation to support the Constitution. Consequently, we have no evidence at all that the Constitution is binding upon anybody, or that anybody is under any contract or obligation whatever to support it. 
and nobody is under any obligation to support it. Lysander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 4. The Constitution not only binds nobody now, but it never did bind anybody. It never bound anybody, because it was never agreed to by anybody in such a manner as to make it, on general principles of law and reason, binding upon him. It is a general principle of law and reason that a written instrument binds no one until he has signed it. This principle is so inflexible a one that even though a man is unable to write his name, he must still make his mark before he is bound by a written contract. This custom was established ages ago, when few men could write their names. When a clerk, that is, a man who could write, was so rare and valuable a person, that even if he were guilty of high crimes, he was entitled to pardon, on the ground that the public could not afford to lose his services. Even at that time, a written contract must be signed, and men who could not write either made their mark or signed their contracts by stamping their seals upon wax affixed to the parchment on which their contracts were written. Hence the custom of affixing seals that has continued to this time. The law holds, and reason declares, that if a written instrument is not signed, the presumption must be that the party to be bound by it did not choose to sign it, or to bind himself by it. And law and reason both give him until the last moment in which to decide whether he will sign it or not. Neither law nor reason requires or expects a man to agree to an instrument until it is written. For until it is written, he cannot know its precise legal meaning. And when it is written, and he has had the opportunity to satisfy himself of the precise legal meaning, he is then expected to decide, and not before, whether he will agree to it or not. And if he do not then sign it, his reason is supposed to be that he does not choose to enter into such a contract. The fact that the instrument was written for him to sign, or with the hope that he would sign it, goes for nothing. Where would the end of fraud in litigation if one party could bring into court a written instrument without any signature and claim to have it enforced upon the ground that it was written for another man to sign, that this other man had promised to sign it, that he ought to have signed it, that he had the opportunity to sign it, if he would, but that he had refused or neglected to do so. Yet, that is the most that could ever be said of the Constitution. The very men who drafted it never signed it in any way to bind themselves by it as a contract. And not one of them probably ever would have signed it in any way to bind himself by it as a contract. Yet the very judges who profess to derive all their authority from the Constitution, from an instrument that nobody ever signed, would spurn any other instrument not signed that should be brought before them for adjudication. Moreover, a written instrument must, in law and reason, not only be signed, but must also be delivered to the party or to someone for him. The signing is of no effect unless the instrument be also delivered. And a party is at perfect liberty to refuse to deliver a written instrument after he has signed it. He is as free to refuse to deliver it as he is to refuse to sign it. The Constitution was not only never signed by anybody, but it was never delivered by anybody or to anybody's agent or attorney. It can therefore be of no more validity as a contract than any other instrument that was never signed or delivered. By Sandra Spooner's No Treason. The Constitution of No Authority, Part 5. As further evidence of the general sense of mankind, as to the practical necessity there is that all men's important contracts, especially those of a permanent nature, should be both written and signed, the following facts are pertinent. For nearly 200 years, that is, since 1677, there has been on the Statute Book of England, and the same in substance, if not precisely in letter, has been reenacted, and is now in force, in nearly or quite all, the states of this union, a statute, the general object of which is to declare that no action shall be brought to enforce contracts of the more important class unless they are put in writing and signed by the parties to be held chargeable upon them. 
The principle of the statute, be it observed, is not merely that written contracts shall be signed, but also that all contracts, except those specially exempted, generally those that are for small amounts and are to remain in force but a short time, shall be both written and signed. The reason of the statute on this point is that it is now so easy a thing for men to put their contracts in writing and sign them, and their failure to do so opens the door to so much doubt, fraud, and litigation, that men who neglect to have their contracts of any considerable importance written and signed ought not to have the benefit of courts of justice to enforce them. And this reason is a wise one, and that experience has confirmed its wisdom and necessity is demonstrated by the fact that it has been acted upon in England for nearly 200 years and has been so nearly universally adopted in this country, and that nobody thinks of repealing it. We all know, too, how careful most men are to have their contracts written and signed, even when the statute does not require it. For example, most men, if they have money due them, of no larger amount than 5 or $10, are careful to take a note for it. If they buy even a small bill of goods, paying for it at the time of delivery, they take a receipted bill for it. If they pay a small balance of a book account or any other small debt previously contracted, they take a written receipt for it. Furthermore, the law everywhere, probably, in our country, as well as in England, requires that a large class of contracts, such as wills, deeds, etc., shall not only be written and signed, but also sealed, witnessed, and acknowledged. And in the case of married women conveying their rights in real estate, the law in many states requires that the women shall be examined separate and apart from their husbands and declare that they sign their contracts free of any fear or compulsion of their husbands. Such are some of the precautions which the laws require and which individuals, for motives of common prudence, even in cases not required by law, take to put their contracts in writing and have them signed and to guard against all uncertainties and controversies in regard to their meaning and validity. And yet, we have what purports, or professes, or is claimed to be a contract, the Constitution, made 80 years ago by men who are now all dead, and who never had any power to bind us, but which, it is claimed, has nevertheless bound three generations of men, consisting of many millions, and which, it is claimed, will be binding upon all the millions that are to come, but which nobody ever signed, sealed, delivered, witnessed, or acknowledged and which few persons, compared with the whole number that are claimed to be bound by it, have ever read, or even seen, or ever will read or see. And of those who have ever read it, or ever will read it, scarcely any two, perhaps no two, have ever agreed, or ever will agree, as to what it means. Moreover, this supposed contract, which would not be received in any court of justice sitting under its authority, if offered to prove a debt of $5, owing by one man to another, is one by which, as it is generally interpreted by those who pretend to administer it, all men, women, and children throughout the country and through all time surrender not only all their property, but also their liberties and even lives into the hands of men who by the supposed contract are expressly made wholly irresponsible for their disposal of them. And we are so insane or so wicked as to destroy property and lives without limit in fighting to compel men to fulfill a supposed contract which, inasmuch as it has never been signed by anybody, is, on general principles of law and reason, such principles as we are all governed by in regard to other contracts, the merest waste paper, binding upon nobody, fit only to be thrown into the fire, or, if preserved, preserved only to serve as a witness and a warning of the folly and wickedness of mankind. Lysander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 6. It is no exaggeration, but a literal truth, to say that 
by the Constitution, not as I interpret it, but as it is interpreted by those who pretend to administer it, the properties, liberties, and lives of the entire people of the United States are surrendered unreservedly into the hands of men who, it is provided by the Constitution itself, shall never be questioned as to any disposal they make of them. Thus, the Constitution, Article 1, Section 6, provides that for any speech or debate or vote in either House, they, the senators and representatives, shall not be questioned in any other place. The whole lawmaking power is given to these senators and representatives when acting by a two-thirds vote. And this provision protects them from all responsibility for the laws they make. The Constitution also enables them to secure the execution of all their laws by giving them power to withhold the salaries of and to impeach or remove all judicial and executive officers who refuse to execute them. Thus, the whole power of the government is in their hands, and they are made utterly irresponsible for the use they make of it. What is this but absolute irresponsible power? It is no answer to this view of the case to say that these men are under oath to use their power only within certain limits. For what care they? Or what should they care? For oaths or limits, when it is expressly provided by the Constitution itself, that they shall never be questioned or held to any responsibility whatever for violating their oaths or transgressing those limits. Neither is it any answer to this view of the case to say that the particular individuals holding this power can be changed once in two or six years. For the power of each set of men is absolute during the term for which they hold it. And when they can hold it no longer, they are su succeeded by men whose powers will be equally absolute and irresponsible. And neither is it any answer to this view of the case to say that the men holding this absolute irresponsible power must be men chosen by the people or portions of them to hold it. A man is nonetheless a slave because he is allowed to choose a new master once in a term of years. Neither are people any less slaves because permitted periodically to choose new masters. What makes them slaves is the fact that they are now, and are always hereafter to be, in the hands of men whose power over them is, and always will be, absolute and irresponsible. Of what appreciable value is it to any man, as an individual, that he is allowed a voice in choosing these public masters? His voice is only one of several millions. See, the right of absolute and irresponsible dominion is the right of property. And the right of property is the right of absolute irresponsible dominion. The two are identical, the one necessarily implying the other. Neither can exist without the other. If, therefore, Congress have that absolute and irresponsible lawmaking power, which the Constitution, according to their interpretation of it, gives them, it can only be because they own us as property. If they own us as property, they are our masters. And their will is our law. If they do not own us as property, they are not our masters, and their will, as such, is of no authority over us. But these men who claim and exercise this absolute and irresponsible dominion over us dare not be consistent, and claim either to be our masters or to own us as property. They say that they are only our servants, agents, attorneys, and representatives. But this declaration involves an absurdity, a contradiction. No man could be my servant, agent, attorney, or representative, and be, at the same time, uncontrollable by me, and irresponsible to me for his acts. It is of no importance that I appointed him and put all power into his hands. If I made him uncontrollable by me and irresponsible to me, he is no longer my servant, agent, attorney, or representative. If I gave him absolute irresponsible power over my property, I gave him the property. If I gave him absolute irresponsible power over myself, I made him my master and gave myself to him as a slave. And it is of no importance whether I called him master or servant, agent or owner. 
The only question is, what power did I put into his hands? Was it an absolute and irresponsible one, or a limited and responsible one? For still another reason, they are neither our agents, servants, attorneys, nor representatives. And, for that, and that reason is that we do not make ourselves responsible for their acts. If a man is my servant, agent, or attorney, I necessarily make myself responsible for all his acts done within the limits of the power I have entrusted to him. If I have entrusted him as my agent with either absolute power or any power at all over the persons or property of other men other than myself, I thereby necessarily make myself responsible to those other persons for any injuries he may do to them so long as he acts within the limits of the power I have granted him. But no individual who may be injured in his person or property by acts of Congress can come to the individual electors and hold them responsible for these acts of their so-called agents or representatives. This fact proves that these pretended agents of the people, of everybody, are really the agents of nobody. If then nobody is individually responsible for the acts of Congress, the members of Congress are nobody's agents. And if they are nobody's agents, they are themselves individually responsible for their own acts, and for their acts of all whom they employ. And the authority they are exercising is simply their own individual authority. And, by the law of nature, the highest of all laws, anybody injured by their acts, anybody who is deprived by them of his property or his liberty, has the same right to hold them individually responsible that he has to hold any other trespasser individually responsible. He has the same right to resist them and their agents that he has to resist any other trespassers. Lysander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 7. It is plain, then, that on general principles of law and reason, such principles as we all act upon in courts of justice and in common life, the Constitution is no contract, that it binds nobody, and never did bind anybody, and that all those who pretend to act by its authority are really acting without any legitimate authority at all, that on general principles of law and reason, they are mere usurpers, and that everybody not only has the right, but is morally bound to treat them as such. If the people of this country wish to maintain such a government as the Constitution describes, there is no reason in the world why they should not sign the instrument itself, and thus make known their wishes in an open, authentic manner, in such manner as the common sense and experience of mankind have shown to be reasonable and necessary in such cases, and in such manner as to make themselves, as they ought to do, individually responsible for the acts of the government. But the people have never been asked to sign it. And the only reason why they have never been asked to sign it has been that it has been known that they never would sign it, that they were neither such fools nor knaves as they must needs have been to be willing to sign it, that, at least as it has been practically interpreted, it is not what any sensible and honest man wants for himself, nor such as he has any right to impose upon others. It is, to all moral intents and purposes, as destitute of obligation as the compacts which robbers and thieves and pirates enter into with each other, but never sign. If any considerable number of the people believe the Constitution to be good, why do they not sign it themselves and make laws for and administer them upon each other, leaving all other persons who do not interfere with them in peace? Until they have tried the experiment for themselves, how can they have the face to impose the Constitution upon, or even to recommend it to, others? Plainly the reason for such absurd and inconsistent conduct is that they want the Constitution, not solely for any honest or legitimate use it can be of to themselves or others, but for the dishonest and illegitimate power it gives them over the persons and properties of others. But for this latter reason, and all their eulogiums on the Constitution, all their exhortations and all their expenditures of money and blood to sustain it would be wanting. Lysander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 
8. The Constitution itself, then, being of no authority, on what authority does our government practically rest? On what ground can those who pretend to administer it claim the right to seize men's property, to restrain them of their natural liberty of action, industry and trade, and to kill all who deny their authority to dispose of men's properties, liberties, and lives at their pleasure or discretion? The most they can say in answer to this question is that some half, two-thirds, or three-fourths of the male adults of the country have a tacit understanding they will maintain a government under the Constitution, that they will select by ballot the persons to administer it, and that those persons who may receive a majority or a plurality of their ballots shall act as their representatives and administer the Constitution in their name and by their authority. But this tacit understanding, admitting it to exist, cannot at all justify the conclusion drawn from it. A tacit understanding between A, B, and C that they will, by ballot, deputize D as their agent to deprive me of my property, liberty, or life cannot at all authorize D to do so. He is nonetheless a robber, tyrant, and murderer because he claims to act as their agent than he would be if he avowedly acted on his own responsibility alone. Neither am I bound to recognize him as their agent, nor can he legitimately claim to be their agent when he brings no written authority from them accrediting him as such. I am under no obligation to take his word as to who his principles may be, or whether he has any. Bringing no credentials, I have a right to say he has no such authority even as he claims to have, and that he is therefore intending to rob, enslave, or murder me on his own account. This tacit understanding, therefore, among the voters of the country amounts to nothing as an authority to their agents. Neither do the ballots by which they select their agents avail any more than does their tacit understanding, for their ballots are given in secret, and therefore in a way to avoid any personal responsibility for the acts of their agents. No body of men can be said to authorize a man to act as their agent to the injury of a third person unless they do it in so open and authentic a manner as to make themselves personally responsible for his acts. None of the voters in this country appoint their political agents in any open, authentic manner, or in any manner to make themselves responsible for their acts. Therefore, these pretended agents cannot legitimately claim to really be agents. Somebody must be responsible for the acts of these pretended agents, and if they cannot show any open and authentic credentials from their principles, they cannot in law or reason be said to have any principles. The maxim applies here. That what does not appear does not exist. If they can show no principles, they have none. But even these pretended agents do not themselves know who their pretended principles are. These latter act in secret, for acting by secret ballot is acting in secret as much as if they were to meet in secret conclave in the darkness of the night. And they are personally as much unknown to the agents they select as they are to others. No pretended agent, therefore, can ever know by whose ballot he is selected, or consequently who his real principles are. Not knowing who his principles are, he has no right to say he has any. He can, at most, say only that he is the agent of a secret band of robbers and murderers who were bind by that faith which prevails among confederates in crime, to stand by him if his acts, done in their name, shall be resisted. Men honestly engaged in attempting to establish justice in the world have no occasion to thus act in secret, or to appoint agents to do acts by which they, the principals, are not willing to be responsible. The secret ballot makes a secret government, and a secret government is a secret band of robbers and murderers. Open despotism is better than this. The single despot stands out in the face of all men and says, I am the state. My will is law. I am your master. I take the responsibility of my acts. The only arbiter I acknowledge is the sword. If anyone denies my right, let him try conclusions with me. But a secret government is little less than a government of assassins. Under it, a man knows not who his tyrants are, until they have struck, and perhaps not then. He may guess beforehand as to some of his immediate neighbors. 
but he really knows nothing. The man to whom he would most naturally fly for protection may prove an enemy when the trial comes. This is the kind of government we have, and is the only one we are likely to have until men are ready to say, we will consent to no constitution, except such and one as we are neither ashamed nor afraid to sign, and we will authorize no government to do anything in our name which we are not willing to be personally responsible for. By Sander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 9. What is the motive to the secret ballot? This and only this. Like other Confederates in crime, those who use it are not friends, but enemies, and they are afraid to be known and to have their individual doings known even to each other. They can contrive to bring about a sufficient understanding to enable them to act in concert against other persons. But beyond this, they have no confidence and no friendship among themselves. In fact, they are engaged quite as much in schemes for plundering each other as in plundering those who are not of them. And it is perfectly well understood among them that the strongest party among them will, in certain contingencies, murder each other by the hundreds of thousands, as they lately did do, to accomplish their purposes against each other. Hence, they dare not to be known, and have their individual doings known even to each other. And this is avowedly the only reason for the ballot, for a secret government, a government by secret bands of robbers and murderers. And we are insane enough to call this liberty? To be a member of this secret band of robbers and murderers is esteemed a privilege and an honor? Without this privilege, a man is considered a slave, but with it a free man? With it, he is considered a free man because he has the same power to secretly, by secret ballot, procure the robbery, enslavement, and murder of another man, and that other man has to procure his robbery, enslavement, and murder? And this they call equal rights? If any number of men, many or few, claim the right to govern the people of this country, let them make and sign an open compact with each other to do so. Let them thus make themselves individually known to those whom they propose to govern, and let them thus openly take the legitimate responsibility of their acts. How many of those who now support the Constitution will ever do this? How many will ever dare openly proclaim their right to govern or take the legitimate responsibility of their acts? Not one. Lysander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 10. It is obvious that, on general principles of law and reason, there exists no such thing as a government created by or resting upon any consent, compact, or agreement of the people of the United States with each other, that the only visible, tangible, responsible government that exists is that of a few individuals only, who act in concert and call themselves by the several names of senators, representatives, presidents, judges, marshals, treasurers, collectors, generals, colonels, captains, etc., etc. On general principles of law and reason, it is of no importance whatever that these few individuals profess to be the agents and representatives of the people of the United States. Since they can show no credentials from the people themselves, they were never appointed as agents or representatives in any open, authentic manner. They do not themselves know and have no means of knowing and cannot prove who their principles, as they call them, are individually, and consequently cannot in law or reason be said to have any principles at all. It is obvious, too, that if these alleged principles ever did appoint these pretended agents or representatives, they appointed them secretly, by secret ballot, and in a way to avoid all personal responsibility for their acts. That, at most, these alleged principles put these pretended agents forward for the most criminal purposes, that is to say, to plunder the people of their property and restrain them of their liberty. And that the only authority that these alleged principles have for so doing is simply a tacit understanding among themselves that they will imprison, shoot, or hang every man who resists the exactions and restraints which their agents or representatives may impose upon them. Thus, it is obvious that the only visible, tangible government we have is made up of these professed agents or representatives of a secret band of robbers and murderers who, to cover up or gloss over, 
their robberies and murders, have taken to themselves the title of the people of the United States, and who, on the pretense of being the people of the United States, assert their right to subject to their dominion and to control and dispose of, at their pleasure, all property and persons found in the United States. Lysander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 11. On general principles of law and reason, the oaths which these pretended agents of the people take to support the Constitution are of no validity or obligation. And why? For this, if for no other reason, that they are given to nobody. There is no privity, as the lawyers say, that is no mutual recognition, consent, and agreement between those who take these oaths and any other persons. If I go upon Boston Common, and in the presence of a hundred thousand people, men, women, and children, with whom I have no contract on the subject, take an oath that I will enforce upon them the law of Moses, of Lycurgus, of Solon, of Justinian, or of Alfred, that oath is, on general principles of law and reason, of no obligation. It is of no obligation not merely because it is intrinsically a criminal one, but also because it is given to nobody, and consequently pledges my faith to nobody. It is merely given to the winds. It would not alter the case at all to say that among these hundred thousand persons in whose presence the oath was taken, there were two, three, or five thousand male adults who had secretly, by secret ballot, and in a way to avoid making themselves individually known to me, or to the remainder of the hundred thousand, designated me secretly and in a manner to prevent my knowing them individually prevents all privity between them and me, and consequently makes it impossible that there could be any contract or pledge of faith on my part towards them, for it is impossible that I can pledge my faith in any legal sense to a man whom I neither know nor have any means of knowing individually. So far as I am concerned, then, these two, three, or five thousand persons are a secret band of robbers and murderers, who have secretly, and in a way to save themselves from all responsibility for my acts, designated me as their agent, and have, through some other agent or pretended agent, made their wishes known to me. But being nevertheless individually unknown to me, and having no open, authentic contract with me, my oath is, on general principles of law and reason, of no validity as a pledge of faith to them. And being no pledge of faith to them, it is no pledge of faith to anybody. It is mere idle wind. At most, it is only a pledge of faith to an unknown band of robbers and murderers, whose instrument for plundering and murdering other people I thus publicly confess myself to be. And it has no other obligation than a similar oath given to any other unknown body of pirates, robbers, and murderers. For these reasons, the oaths taken by members of Congress to support the Constitution are, on general principles of law and reason, of no validity. They are not only criminal in themselves and therefore void, but they are also void for the further reason that they are given to nobody. It cannot be said that in any legitimate or legal sense they are given to the people of the United States. It is neither the whole nor any large proportion of the whole people of the United States ever, either openly or secretly, appointed or designated these men as their agents to carry the Constitution into effect. The great body of the people, that is, men, women, and children, were never asked or even permitted to signify in any formal manner, either openly or secretly, their choice or wish on the subject. The most that these members of Congress can say in favor of their appointment is simply this, each one can say for himself. I have evidence satisfactory to myself that there exists scattered throughout the country a band of men having a tacit understanding with each other and calling themselves the people of the United States, whose general purposes are to control and plunder each other and all other persons in the country, and, so far as they can, even in neighboring countries, and to kill every man who shall attempt to defend his person and property against their schemes of plunder and dominion. Who these men are individually, I have no certain means of knowing, for they sign no papers and give no open, authentic evidence of their individual membership. They are not known individually even to each other. 
They are apparently as much afraid of being individually known to each other as of being known to other persons. Hence, they ordinarily have no mode either of exercising or of making known their individual membership, otherwise than by giving their votes secretly for certain agents to do their will. But although these men are individually unknown both to each other and to other persons, it is generally understood in the country that none but male persons of the age of 21 years and upwards can be members. It is also generally understood that all male persons born in the country have in certain complexions and in some localities certain amounts of property and in certain cases even persons of foreign birth are permitted to be members. But it appears that Usually, not more than one-half, two-thirds, or in some cases, three-fourths of all who are thus permitted to become members of the band ever exercise or consequently prove their actual membership in the only mode in which they ordinarily can exercise or prove it. That is to say, by giving their vote secretly for the officers or agents of the band. The number of these secret votes, so far as we have any account of them, varies greatly from year to year, thus tending to prove that the band, instead of being a permanent organization, is merely pro tempore fair, with those who choose to act with it for the time being. The gross number of these secret votes, or what purports to be their gross number in different localities, is occasionally published. Whether these reports are accurate or not, we have no means of knowing. It is generally supposed that great frauds are often committed in depositing them. They are understood to be received and counted by certain men, who were themselves appointed for that purpose by the same secret process by which all other officers and agents of the band are selected. According to the reports of these receivers of votes, for whose accuracy or honesty, however, I cannot vouch, and according to my best knowledge of the whole number of male persons in my district who, it is supposed, were permitted to vote, it would appear that one-half, two-thirds, or three-fourths actually did vote. Who the men were individually who cast these votes, I have no knowledge, for the whole thing was done secretly. But of the secret votes, thus given for what they call a member of Congress, the receivers reported that I had a majority, or at least a larger number than any other one person. And it is only by virtue of such a designation that I am now here to act in concert with other persons similarly selected in other parts of the country. It is understood among those who sent me here that all the persons so selected will, on coming together at the city of Washington, take an oath in each other's presence to support the Constitution of the United States. By this is meant a certain paper that was drawn up 80 years ago. It was never signed by anybody and apparently has no obligation and never had any obligation as a contract. In fact, few persons ever read it, and doubtless much the largest number of those who voted for me and the others never even saw it, or now pretend to know what it means. Nevertheless, it is often spoken of in the country as the Constitution of the United States. And for some reason or another, the men who sent me here seem to expect that I, and all with whom I act, will swear to carry this Constitution into effect. I am therefore ready to take this oath, and to cooperate with all others similarly selected who are ready to take the same oath. This is the most that any member of Congress can say in proof that he has any constituency, that he represents anybody that his oath to support the Constitution is given to anybody or pledges his faith to anybody. He has no open, written, or other authentic evidence, such as is required in all other cases, that he has ever appointed the agent or representative of anybody. He has no written power of attorney from any single individual. He has no such legal knowledge as is required in all other cases, by which he can identify a single one of them who pretend to have appointed him to represent them. This oath, professedly given to them to support the Constitution, is, on general principles of law and reason, an oath given to nobody. It pledges his faith to nobody. If he fails to fulfill his oath, not a single person can come forward and say to him, you have betrayed me or broken faith with me. No one can come forward and say to him, I appointed you my attorney to act for me. I required you to swear that, as my attorney, you would support the Constitution. You promised me that you would do so, and now you have forfeited the oath you gave to me. No single individual can say this. 
No open, avowed, or responsible association or body of men can come forward and say to him, we appointed you our attorney to act for us. We required you to swear that as our attorney, you would support the Constitution. You promised us that you would do so, and now you have forfeited the oath you gave to us. No open, avowed, or responsible association or body of men can say this to him, because there is no such association or body of men in existence. If anyone should assert that there is such an association, let him prove, if he can, who compose it. Let him produce, if he can, any open, written, or other authentic contract signed or agreed to by these men, forming themselves into an association, making themselves known as such to the world, appointing him as their agent, and making themselves individually or as an association responsible for his acts done by their authority. Until all this can be shown, no one can say that in any legitimate sense there is any such association, or that he is their agent, or that he ever gave his oath to them, or ever pledged his faith to them. On general principles of law and reason, it would be a sufficient answer for him to say to all individuals and all pretended associations of individuals who should accuse him of a breach of faith to them. I never knew you. Where is your evidence that you, either individually or collectively, ever appointed me your attorney? That you ever required me to swear to you that as your attorney I would support the Constitution? Or that I have now broken any faith I ever pledged to you? You may or you may not be members of that secret band of robbers and murderers who act in secret, appoint their agents by a secret ballot, who keep themselves individually unknown even to the agents they thus appoint. And who, therefore, cannot claim that they have any agents, or that any of their pretended agents ever gave his oath or pledged his faith to them? I repudiate you altogether. My oath was given to others, with whom you have nothing to do. Or it was idle wind, given only to the idle winds. Begone. Lysander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 12. For the same reasons, the oaths of all other pretended agents of the secret band of robbers and murderers are, on general principles of law and reason, equally destitute of obligation. They are given to nobody, but only to the winds. The oaths of the tax gatherers and treasurers of the band are, on general principles of law and reason, of no validity. If any tax gatherer, for example, should put money he receives into his own pocket and refuse to part with it, the members of this band could not say to him, you collected that money as our agent and for our uses, and you swore to pay it over to us or to those we should appoint to receive it. You have betrayed us and broken faith with us. It would be a sufficient answer for him to say to them, I never knew you. You never made yourselves individually known to me. I never gave my oath to you as individuals. You may or may not be members of that secret band who appoint agents to rob and murder other people, but who are cautious not to make themselves individually known either to such agents or to those whom their agents are commissioned to rob. If you are members of that band, you have given me no proof that you ever commissioned me to rob others for your benefit. I never knew you, as individuals, and of course, never promised you that I would pay over to you the proceeds of my robberies. I committed my robberies on my own account and for my own profit. If you thought I was fool enough to allow you to keep yourselves concealed and use me as your tool for robbing other persons, or that I would take all the personal risk for the robberies and pay over the proceeds to you, you are particularly simple. As I took all the risk of my robberies, I proposed to take all the profits. Be gone. You are fools as well as villains. If I gave my oath to anybody, I gave it to other persons than you. But I really gave it to nobody. I only gave it to the winds. It answered my purposes at the time. It enabled me to get the money I was after, and now I propose to keep it. If you expected me to pay it over to you, you relied only upon that honor that is said to prevail among thieves. You now understand that is a very poor reliance. I trust you may become wise enough to never rely upon it again. If I have any duty in the matter, it is to give back the money to those whom I took it, not to pay it over to such villains such as you. Lysander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 13.
On general principles of law and reason, the oaths which foreigners take on coming here and being naturalized, as it is called, are of no validity. They are necessarily given to nobody, because there is no open, authentic association to which they can join themselves, or to whom, as individuals, they can pledge their faith. No such association or organization as the people of the United States, having ever been formed by any open, written, authentic, or voluntary contract, there is, on general principles of law and reason, no such association or organization in existence. And all oaths that purport to be given to such an association are necessarily given only to the winds. They cannot be said to be given to any man or body of men as individuals because no man or body of men can come forward with any proof that the oaths were given to them as individuals or to any association of which they are members. To say that there is a tacit understanding among a portion of the male adults of the country that they will call themselves the people of the United States and that they will act in concert in subjecting the remainder of the people of the United States to their dominion, but that they will keep themselves personally concealed by doing all their acts secretly is wholly insufficient, on general principles of law and reason, to prove the existence of any such association or organization as the people of the United States, or consequently to prove that the oaths of foreigners were given to any such association. Lysander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 14. On general principles of law and reason, all the oaths which, since the war, have been given by Southern men, that they will obey the laws of Congress, support the Union, and the like, are of no validity. Such oaths are invalid not only because they were extorted by military power and threats of confiscation, and because they are in contravention of men's natural right to do as they please about supporting the government, but also because they are given to nobody. They were nominally given to the United States, but being nominally given to the United States, they were necessarily given to nobody because, on general principles of law and reason, there were no United States to whom the oaths could be given. That is to say, there was no open, authentic, avowed, legitimate association, corporation, or body of men known as the United States or as the people of the United States to whom the oaths could have been given. If anybody says that there was such a corporation, let him state who were the individuals who comprised it and how and when they became a corporation. Were Mr. A, Mr. B, and Mr. C members of it? If so, where are their signatures? Where is the evidence of their membership? Where the record? Where the open, authentic proof? There is none. Therefore, in law and reason, there was no such corporation. On general principles of law and reason, every corporation, association, or organized body of men having a legitimate corporate existence and legitimate corporate rights must consist of certain known individuals who can prove, by legitimate and reasonable evidence, their membership. But nothing of this kind can be proved in regard to the corporation or body of men who call themselves the United States. Not a man of them in all the northern states can prove by any legitimate evidence, such as is required to prove membership in other legal corporations, that he himself or any other man whom he can name is a member of any corporation or association called the United States or the people of the United States, or, consequently, that there is any such corporation. And since no such corporation can be proved to exist, it cannot, of course, be proved that the oaths of Southern men were given to any such corporation. The most that can be claimed is that the oaths were given to a secret band of robbers and murderers who call themselves the United States and extorted those oaths. But that certainly is not enough to prove that the oaths are of any obligation. Lysander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 15. On general principles of law and reason, the oaths of soldiers that they will serve a given number of years, that they will obey the orders of their superior officers, that they will bear true allegiance to the government, and so forth, are of no obligation. Independently of the criminality of an oath that, for a given number of years, he will kill all whom he may be commanded to kill, 
without exercising his own judgment or conscience as to the justice or necessity of such killing, there is this further reason why a soldier's oath is of no obligation. That is to say, that like all the other oaths that have been now mentioned, it is given to nobody. There being, in no legitimate sense, any such corporation or nation as the United States, nor consequently, in any legitimate sense, any such government as the government of the United States, a soldier's oath given to, or contract made with, such nation or government, is necessarily an oath given to, or a contract made with, nobody. Consequently, such oath or contract can be of no obligation. By Sander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 16. On general principles of law and reason, the treaties, so-called, which purport to be entered into with other nations by persons calling themselves ambassadors, secretaries, presidents, and senators of the United States, in the name and in behalf of the people of the United States, are of no validity. These so-called ambassadors, secretaries, presidents, and senators, who claim to be the agents of the people of the United States for making these treaties, can show no open, written, or other authentic evidence that either the whole people of the United States or any other open, avowed, responsible body of men calling themselves by that name ever authorized these pretended ambassadors and others to make treaties in the name of or binding upon any one of the people of the United States or any other open, avowed, responsible body of men calling themselves by that name ever authorized these pretended ambassadors, secretaries, and others in their name and behalf to recognize certain other persons calling themselves emperors, kings, queens, and the like as the rightful rulers, sovereigns, masters, or representatives of the different peoples whom they assume to govern, to represent, and to bind. The nations, as they are called, with whom our pretended ambassadors, secretaries, presidents, and senators profess to make treaties, are as much myths as our own. On general principles of law and reason, there are no such nations. That is to say, Neither the whole people of England, for example, nor any open, avowed, re responsible body of men calling themselves by that name ever, by any open, written, or other authentic contract with each other, form themselves into any bona fide, legitimate association or organization, or authorize any king, queen, or other representative to make treaties in their name or to bind them, either individually or as an association by such treaties. Our pretended treaties, then, being made with no legitimate or bona fide nations or representatives of nations, and being made on our part by persons who have no legitimate authority to act for us, have intrinsically no more validity than a pretended treaty made by the man in the moon with the king of the Polites. Lysander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 17. On general principles of law and reason, debts contracted in the name of the United States or the people of the United States are of no validity. It is utterly absurd to pretend that debts to the amount of 2,500 millions of dollars are binding upon 35 or 40 millions of people when there is not a particle of legitimate evidence, such as would be required to prove a private debt, that can be produced against any one of them, that either he or his properly authorized attorney ever contracted to pay one cent. Certainly neither the whole people of the United States nor any number of them ever separately or individually contracted to pay a cent to these debts. Certainly also neither the whole people of the United States nor any number of them ever by any open, written, or other authentic or voluntary contract united themselves as a firm corporation or association by the name of the United States or the people of the United States and authorize their agents to contract debts in their name. Certainly too there is in existence no such firm corporation or association as the United States or the people of the United States formed by any open, written, or other authentic and voluntary contract 
and having corporate property with which to pay these debts. How, then, is it possible, on any general principles of law or reason, that debts that are binding upon nobody individually can be binding upon 40 millions of people collectively, when, on general and legitimate principles of law and reason, these 40 millions of people neither have nor ever had any corporate property, never made any corporate or individual contract, and neither have nor ever had any corporate existence? Who then created these debts in the name of the United States? Why? At most, only a few persons calling themselves members of Congress, etc., who pretended to represent the people of the United States, but who really represented only a secret band of robbers and murderers, who wanted money to carry on the robberies and murders in which they were then engaged, and who intended to extort from the future people of the United States by robbery and threats of murder, and real murder, if that should prove necessary, the means to pay these debts. This band of robbers and murderers, who are the real principals in contracting these debts, is a secret one, because its members have never entered into any open, written, avowed, or authentic contract by which they may be individually known to the world or even to each other. Their real or pretended representatives who contracted these debts in their name were selected, if selected at all, for that purpose secretly, by secret ballot and in a way to furnish evidence against none of the principals individually. And these principals were known individually neither to their pretended representatives who contracted these debts in their behalf, nor to those who lent the money. The money, therefore, was all borrowed and lent in the dark, that is, by men who did not see each other's faces, or know each other's names, who could not then and cannot now identify each other as principals in the transactions, and who consequently can prove no contract with each other. Furthermore, the money was all lent and borrowed for criminal purposes, that is, for purposes of robbery and murder, and for this reason, the contracts were all intrinsically void, and would have been so even though the real parties, borrowers and lenders, had come face to face, and made their contracts openly in their own proper names. Furthermore, the secret band of robbers and murderers, who were the real borrowers of this money, having no legitimate corporate existence, have no corporate property with which to pay these debts. They do indeed pretend to own large tracts of wild lands lying between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans and between the Gulf of Mexico and the North Pole. But, on general principles of law and reason, they might as well pretend to own the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans themselves or the atmosphere and the sunlight and to hold them and dispose of them for the payment of these debts. Having no corporate property with which to pay what purports to be their corporate debts, the secret band of robbers and murderers are really bankrupt. They have nothing to pay with. In fact, they do not propose to pay their debts otherwise than from the proceeds of their future robberies and murders. They are confessedly their sole reliance, and were known to be such by the lenders of the money at the time the money was lent. And it was, therefore, virtually a part of their contract that the money should be repaid only from the proceeds of these future robberies and murders. For this reason, if for no other, the contracts were void from the beginning. In fact, these apparently two classes, borrowers and lenders, were really one and the same class. They borrowed and lent money from and to themselves. They themselves were not only part and parcel, but the very life and soul of the secret band of robbers and murderers who borrowed and spent the money. Individually, they furnished money for a common enterprise, taking in return what purported to be corporate promises for individual loans. The only excuse they had for taking these so-called corporate promises of for individual loans by the same parties was that they might have some apparent excuse for the future robberies of the band, that is, to pay the debts of the corporation. And they might also know what shares they were to be respectively entitled to out of the proceeds of their future robberies. 
Finally, if these debts had been created for the utmost innocent and honest purposes, and in the most open and honest manner, by the real parties to the contracts, these parties could thereby have bound nobody but themselves and no property but their own. They could have bound nobody that should have come after them, and no property subsequently created by or belonging to other persons. Lysander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 18. The Constitution having never been signed by anybody, and there being no other open, written, or authentic contract between any parties whatever, by virtue of which the United States government so-called is maintained, and it being well known that none but male persons of 21 years of age and upwards are allowed any voice in the government, and it also being well known that a large number of those adult persons seldom or never vote at all, and that all those who do vote do so secretly by secret ballot and in a way to prevent their individual votes being known, either to the world or even to each other, and consequently in a way to make no one openly responsible for the acts of their agents or representatives, all these things being known, the questions arise. Who composed the real governing power in this country? Who are the men, the responsible men, who rob us of our property, restrain us of our liberty, subject us to their arbitrary dominion, and devastate our homes and shoot us down by the hundreds of thousands if we resist? How shall we find these men? How shall we know them from others? How shall we defend ourselves and our property against them? Who of our neighbors are members of the secret band of robbers and murderers? How can we know which are their houses, that we may burn or demolish them? Which their property, that we may destroy it? Which their persons, that we may kill them, and rid the world and ourselves of such tyrants and monsters? These are questions that must be answered before men can be free before they can protect themselves against the secret band of robbers and murderers who now plunder and slave and destroy them. The answer to these questions is that only those who have the will and the power to shoot down their fellow men are the real rulers in this, as in all other so-called civilized countries, for by no others will civilized men be robbed or enslaved. Among savages, mere physical strength on the part of one man may enable him to rob, enslave, or kill another man. Among barbarians, mere physical strength on the part of a body of men, disciplined and acting in concert, though with very little money or other wealth, may, under some circumstances, enable them to rob, enslave, or kill another body of men as numerous or perhaps even more numerous than themselves. And among both savages and barbarians, mere want may sometimes compel one man to sell himself as a slave to another. But with so-called civilized peoples, among whom knowledge, wealth, and the means of acting in concert have become diffused, and who have invented such weapons and other means of defense as to render mere physical strength of less importance, and by whom soldiers in any requisite number, and any other instrumentalities of war in any requisite amount, can always be had for money. The question of war, and consequently the question of power, is little else more than a mere question of money. As a necessary consequence, those who stand ready to furnish this money are the real rulers. It is so in Europe, and it is so in this country. In Europe, the nominal rulers, the emperors and kings and parliaments, are anything but the real rulers of their respective countries. They are little or nothing else than mere tools, employed by the wealthy who rob and slave, and if need be, murder those who have less wealth or none at all. The Rothschilds, and that class of moneylenders of whom they are the representatives and agents, men who never think of lending a shilling to the next-door neighbors for purposes of honest industry, unless upon the most ample security and at the highest rate of interest, stand ready at all times to lend money of unlimited amounts to those robbers and murderers who call themselves governments in shooting down those who do not submit quietly to being robbed and enslaved. They lend their money in this manner, knowing that it is to be expended in murdering their fellow men. 
for simply seeking their liberty and their rights, knowing also that neither the interest nor the principal will ever be paid, except as it will be extorted on the terror of the repetition of such murders as those for which the money is lent to be expended. These moneylenders, the Rothschilds, for example, say to themselves, if we lend a hundred million sterling to the Queen and Parliament of England, it will enable them to murder twenty, fifty, or a hundred thousand people in England, Ireland, or India, and the terror inspired by such wholesale murder will enable them to keep the whole people of those countries in subjection for twenty, or perhaps fifty years to come, to control all their trade and industry, and to extort from them large amounts of money under the name of taxes, and from the wealth thus extorted from them, they, the Queen and Parliament, can afford to pay us a higher rate of interest for our money than we can get in any other way. Or, if we lend this sum to the Emperor of Austria, it will enable him to murder so many of his people as to strike terror into the rest, and thus enable him to keep them in subjection, and extort money from them, for twenty or fifty years to come. And they say the same in regard to the Emperor of Russia, the King of Prussia, the Emperor of France, or any other ruler, so-called, who, in their judgment, will be able, by murdering a reasonable portion of his people, to keep the rest in subjection, and extort money from them, for a long time to come, to pay the interest and principal of the money lent him. And why are these men so ready to lend money for murdering their fellow men? Solely for this reason. That is to say, that such loans are considered better investments than loans for purposes of honest industry. They pay higher rates of interest, and it is less trouble to look after them. This is the whole matter. The question of making these loans is, with these lenders, a mere question of pecuniary profit. They lend money to be expended in robbing, enslaving, and murdering their fellow men, solely because, on the whole, such loans pay better than any others. They are no respecters of persons, no superstitious fools, that reverence monarchs. They care no more for a king or an emperor than they do for a beggar, except as he is a better customer, and can pay them better interest for their money. If they doubt his ability to make his murder successful for maintaining his power, and thus extorting money from his people in future, they dismiss him as unceremoniously as they would dismiss any other hopeless bankrupt who should want to borrow money to save himself from open insolvency. When these great lenders of blood money, like the Rothschilds, have loaned vast sums in this way for purposes of murder to an emperor or a king, they sell out the bonds taken by them in small amounts to anybody and everybody who are disposed to buy them at satisfactory prices to hold as investments. They, the Rothschilds, thus soon get back their money with great profits, and are now ready to lend money in the same way again to any other robber or murderer, called an emperor or a king, necessary to be successful in his robberies and murders, and able to pay a good price for the money necessary to carry them on. The business of lending blood money is one of the most thoroughly sordid, cold-blooded, and criminal that was ever carried on, to any considerable extent, amongst human beings. It is like lending money to slave traders, or to common robbers and pirates to be repaid out of their plunder. And the men who loan money to governments, so-called, for the purpose of enabling the latter to rob, enslave, and murder their people, are among the greatest villains the world has ever seen. And they as much deserve to be hunted and killed, if they cannot otherwise be got rid of, as any slave traders, robbers, or pirates that ever lived. When these emperors and kings, so-called, have obtained their loans, they proceed to hire and train immense numbers of professional murderers called soldiers, and employ them in shooting down all who resist their demands for money. In fact, most of them keep large bodies of these murderers constantly in their service as their only means of enforcing their extortions. There are now, I think, four or five millions of these professional murderers constantly employed by the so-called sovereigns of Europe. The enslaved people are, of course, forced to support and pay all these murderers, as well as to submit to all other extortions which these murderers employed to enforce. It is only in this way that most of the so-called governments of Europe are maintained. These so-called governments are in reality only great bands of robbers and murderers, organized, disciplined, and constantly on the alert. 
And the so-called sovereigns in these different governments are simply the heads or chiefs of different bands of robbers and murderers. And these heads or chiefs are dependent upon the lenders of blood money for the means to carry on their robberies and murders. They could not sustain themselves a moment but for the loans made to them by these blood money loan mongers. At first care is to maintain their credit with them, for they know their end has come the instant their credit with them fails. Consequently, the first proceeds of their extortions are scrupulously applied to the payment of the interest on their loans. In addition to paying the interest on their bonds, they perhaps grant to the holders of them great monopolies in banking, like the banks of England, of France, and of Vienna. With the agreement that these banks shall furnish money whenever, in sudden emergencies, it may be necessary to shoot down more of their people. Perhaps also, by means of tariffs on competing imports, they give great monopolies to certain branches of industry, in which these lenders of blood money are engaged. They also, by unequal taxation, exempt wholly or partially the property of these loanmongers and throw corresponding burdens upon those who are too poor and weak to resist. Thus it is evident that all these men, who call themselves by the high-sounding names of emperors, kings, sovereigns, monarchs, most Christian majesties, most Catholic majesties, high-mightinesses, most serene and potent princes, and the like, and who claim to rule by the grace of God, by divine right, that is, by special authority from heaven, are intrinsically not only the merest miscreants and wretches engaged solely in plundering, enslaving, and murdering their fellow men, but that they are also the merest hangers-on, the servile, obsequious, fawning dependents and tools of these blood-money loanmongers, on whom they rely for the means to carry on their crimes. These loanmongers, like the Rothschilds, laugh in their sleeves and say to themselves, These despicable creatures who call themselves emperors and kings and majesties, and most serene and potent princes, who profess to wear crowns and sit on thrones, who deck themselves with ribbons and feathers and jewels, and surround themselves with hired flatterers and lickspittles, and whom we suffer to strut around and palm themselves off upon fools and slaves as sovereigns and lawgivers, specially appointed by Almighty God, and to hold themselves out as the sole fountains of honors and dignities and wealth and power. All these miscreants and impostors know that we make them and use them, that in us they live, move, and have their being, that we require them, as the price of their positions, to take upon themselves all the labor, all the danger, and all the odium of all the crimes they commit for our profit, and that we will unmake them, strip them of their gigaws, and send them out into the world as beggars, or give them over to the vengeance of the people they have enslaved, the moment they refuse to commit any crime we require of them, or to pay over to us such share of the proceeds of their robberies as we see fit to demand. By Sander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 19. Now, what is true in Europe is substantially true in this country. The difference is the immaterial one, that in this country there is no visible, permanent head or chief of these robbers and murderers who call themselves the government. That is to say, there is no one man who calls himself the state or even emperor, king, or sovereign. No one who claims that he and his children rule by the grace of God, by divine right, or by special appointment from heaven. There are only certain men who call themselves presidents, senators, and representatives, and claim to be the authorized agents for the time being or for certain short periods of all the people of the United States, but who can show no credentials or powers of attorney or any other open authentic evidence that they are so, and who notoriously are not so, but are only really the agents of a secret band of robbers and murderers, whom they themselves do not know, and have no means of knowing individually, but who they trust will openly or secretly, when the crisis comes, sustain them in all their usurpations and crimes. What is important to be noticed is that these so-called presidents, senators, and representatives, these pretended agents of all the people of the United States, the moment their exactions meet with any formidable resistance from any portion of the people, they themselves are obliged like their co-robbers and murderers in Europe, 
to fly at once to the lenders of blood money for the means to sustain their power. And they borrow their money on the same principle and for the same purpose. To be expended in shooting down all those people of the United States, their own constituents and principles as they profess to call them, who resist the robberies and enslavement which these borrowers of money are practicing upon them. And they expect to repay the loans, if at all, only from the proceeds of the future robberies, which they anticipate it will be easy for them and their successors to perpetuate through a long series of years upon the pretended principles if they can but shoot down some hundreds of thousands of them and thus strike terror into the rest. Perhaps the facts were never made more evident in any country on the globe than in our own, that these soulless blood money loan mongers are the real rulers. That the ostensible government, the presidents, senators, and representatives, so-called, are merely their tools, and that no ideas of or regard for justice or liberty had anything to do in inducing them to lend their money for the war. In proof of all this, look at the following facts. Nearly a hundred years ago, we professed to have got rid of all that religious superstition inculcated by a servile and corrupt priesthood in Europe that rulers, so-called, derive their authority directly from heaven, and that it was consequently a religious duty on the part of the people to obey them. We professed long ago to have learned that governments could rightfully exist only by the free will and on the voluntary support of those who might choose to sustain them. We all profess to have known long ago that the only legitimate objects of government were the maintenance of liberty and justice equally for all. All this we had professed for nearly a hundred years. And we profess to look with pity and contempt upon those ignorant, superstitious, and enslaved peoples of Europe who were so easily kept in subjection by the frauds and force of priests and kings. Notwithstanding all this that we had learned and known and professed for nearly a century, these lenders of blood money had, for a long series of years previous to the war, been the willing accomplices of the slaveholders in perverting the government from the purposes of liberty and justice to the greatest of crimes. They had been such accomplices for a purely pecuniary consideration, to wit, a control of the markets in the South. In other words, the privilege of holding the slaveholders themselves in industrial and commercial subjection to the manufacturers and merchants of the North, who afterwards furnished the money for the war. And these Northern merchants and manufacturers, these lenders of blood money, were willing to continue to be the accomplices of the slaveholders in the future for the same pecuniary consideration. But the slaveholders, either doubting the fidelity of their northern allies or feeling themselves strong enough to keep their slaves in subjection without northern assistance, would no longer pay the price which these northern men demanded. And it was to enforce this price in the future, that is to monopolize the southern markets, to maintain their industrial and commercial control over the south, that these northern manufacturers and merchants lent some of the profits of their former monopolies for the war in order to secure to themselves the same or greater monopolies in the future. These, and not any love of liberty or justice, were the motives on which the money for the war was lent by the North. In short, the North said to the slaveholders, If you will not pay us our price, that is, give us control over your markets, for our assistance against your slaves, we will secure the same price, keep control of your markets, by helping your slaves against you, and using them as our tools for maintaining dominion over you. For the control of your markets we will have, whether the tools we use for that purpose be black or white, and be the cost, in blood or money, what it may. On this principle and from this motive, and not from any love of liberty or justice, the money was lent in enormous amounts and at enormous rates of interest. And it was only by means of these loans that the objects of the war were accomplished. And now these lenders of blood money demand their pay. And the government, so-called, becomes their tool, their servile, slavish, villainous tool, to extort it from the labor of the enslaved people both of the North and of the South. And it is to be extorted by every form of direct and indirect and unequal taxation. Not only the nominal debt and interest, enormous as the latter was, are to be paid in full, but these holders of the debt are to be paid still further, 
and perhaps doubly, triply, or quadruply paid by such tariffs on imports as will enable our home manufacturers to realize enormous prices for their commodities. Also by such monopolies in banking as will enable them to keep control of and thus enslave and plunder the industry and trade of the great body of the northern people themselves. Short, the industrial and commercial slavery of the great body of the people, north and south, black and white, and is the price that these lenders of blood money demand and insist upon and are determined to secure in return for the money lent for the war. This program, having been fully arranged and systematized, they put their sword into the hands of the chief murderer of the war and charge him to carry their scheme into effect. And now he, speaking as their organ, says, let us have peace. The meaning of this is, submit quietly to all the robbery and slavery we have arranged for you, and you can have peace. But in case you resist, the same lenders of blood money who furnish the means to subdue the South will furnish the means to again subdue you. These are the terms on which alone this government, or with few exceptions any other, ever gives peace to its people. The whole affair on the part of those who furnish the money has been, and now is, a deliberate scheme of robbery and murder. Not merely to monopolize the markets of the South, but also to monopolize the currency, and thus control the industry and trade, and thus plunder and enslave the laborers of both North and South. And Congress, and the President, are today the merest tools for their purposes. They are obliged to be, for they show that their own power as rulers, so-called, is at an end the moment their credit with the blood money loanmongers fails. They are like a bankrupt in the hands of an extortioner. They dare not say nay to any demand made upon them. And to hide at once, if possible, both their servility and their crimes, they attempt to divert public attention by crying out that they have abolished slavery, that they have saved the country, that they have preserved our glorious union, and that is, and now paying the national debt, as they call it, as if the people themselves, all of them who ought to be taxed for its payment, had really and voluntarily joined in contracting it. They are simply maintaining the national honor. By maintaining the national honor, they mean simply that they themselves, open robbers and murderers, assume to be the nation, and will keep faith with those who lend them the money necessary to enable them to crush the great body of the people under their feet, and will faithfully appropriate from the proceeds of their future robberies and murders enough to pay all their loans, principal, and interest. The pretense that the abolition of slavery was either a motive or justification for the war is a fraud of the same character with that of maintaining the national honor. Who but such usurpers, robbers, and murderers as they ever established slavery? Or what government, except one resting upon the sword like the one we have now, was ever capable of maintaining slavery? And why do these men abolish slavery? Not from any love of liberty in general, not as an act of justice to the black man himself, but only as a war measure, and because they wanted his assistance and that of his friends, in carrying on the war they had undertaken for maintaining and intensifying that political, commercial, and industrial slavery to which they have subjected the great body of the people, both white and black. And yet these impostors now cry out that they have abolished the chattel slavery of the black man, although that was not the motive of the war, as if they thought that they could thereby conceal, atone for, or justify that other slavery which they were fighting to perpetuate, and to render more rigorous and inexorable than it had ever been before. There was no difference of principle, but only of degree, between the slavery they boast they've abolished and the slavery they were fighting to preserve. For all restraints upon men's liberty, not necessary for the simple maintenance of justice, are of the nature of slavery, and differ from each other only in degree. If their object had really been to abolish slavery or maintain liberty or justice generally, they had only to say, All, whether white or black, who want the protection of this government shall have it, and all who do not want it will be left in peace, so long as they leave us in peace. Had they said this, slavery would necessarily have been abolished at once. The war would have been saved, and a thousand times noble union than we have ever had would have been the result.
It would have been a voluntary union of free men, such a union as will one day exist among all men the world over, if the several nations, so-called, shall ever get rid of the usurpers, robbers, and murderers called governments that now plunder, enslave, and destroy them. Still another of the frauds of these men is that they are now establishing, and that the war was designed to establish, a government of consent. The only idea that they have ever manifested as to what is a government of consent is this, that is, one to which everybody must consent or be shot. This idea was the dominant one on which the war was carried on, and it is the dominant one now that we have got what is called peace. Their pretenses that they have saved the country and preserved our glorious union are frauds like all the rest of their pretenses. By them, they mean simply that they have subjugated and maintained their power over an unwilling people. This they call saving a country, as if an enslaved and subjugated people, or as if any people kept in subjection by the sword, as it is intended that all of us shall be hereafter, could be said to have any country. This, too, they call preserving our glorious union, as if there could be said to be any union, glorious or inglorious, that was not voluntary. Or as if there could be said to be any union between masters and slaves, between those who conquer and those who are subjugated. All these cries of having abolished slavery, of having saved the country, of having preserved the union, of establishing a government of consent, and of maintaining the national honor, are all gross, shameless, transparent cheats, so transparent that they ought to deceive no one when uttered as justifications for the war, or for the government that has succeeded the war, or for now compelling the people to pay for the cost of the war, or for compelling anybody to support a government that he does not want. The lesson taught by all these facts is this. As long as mankind continue to pay national debts, so-called, that is, so long as they are dupes and cowards as to pay for being cheated, plundered, enslaved, and murdered, so long there will be enough to lend them money for these purposes. And with that money, a plenty of tools, called soldiers, can be hired to keep them in subjection. But when they refuse any longer to pay for thus being cheated, plundered, enslaved, and murdered, they will cease to have cheats and usurpers and robbers and murderers and blood money loanmongers for masters. By Sander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority. Appendix. Inasmuch as the Constitution was never signed nor agreed to by anybody as a contract, and therefore never bound to anybody, and is now binding upon nobody, and is, moreover, such an one as no people can ever hereafter be expected to consent to, except as they may be forced to do so at the point of the bayonet, it is perhaps of no importance what its true legal meaning as a contract is. Nevertheless, the writer thinks it proper to say that, in his opinion, the Constitution is no such instrument as it has generally been assumed to be, but that by false interpretations and naked usurpations, the government has been made in practice a very widely and almost wholly different thing from what the Constitution itself purports to authorize. He has heretofore written much, and could write much more, to prove that such is the truth. But whether the Constitution really be one thing or another, this much is certain that it has either authorized such a government as we have had or it has been powerless to prevent it. In either case, it is unfit to exist. I hope you enjoyed this reading of Lysander Spooner's No Trees in the Constitution of No Authority by me, Mark Stevens, the author of Adventures in Legal Land, where black is white and white is black and other shocking discoveries from America's courtrooms. Make sure to visit adventuresinlegalland.com today. Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. 
800-242-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. And I'm Melody Cedarstrom, and you're listening to Financial Survival. I'm here with my co-host. I'm here with my co-host, Alfred Addis, to bring you opinion and commentary on today's economic and political events for Monday, June 22nd, 2015. Good afternoon, Al. Well, we had gold down only $15 today, minus 15 at 11.86. However, silver managed to be up. 12 cents at 16.30. Platinum was down 24 at 1,064. And palladium was down also 12 bucks at 699. And uh, the USDX day up 28 at 94.87. Crude oil up 7, popped over 60 by one penny. And the paper markets today. Oh, let's see. Paper markets today. I pulled up the wrong. Getting a little sidetracked here. Uh, yeah, the Dow up 104 points at 18,120. The NASDAQ is up 36. The NASDAQ is up 36 at 51.53, and the S&P up 12 at 21.22. Ten-year yield, 2.8. Three six up point zero nine. Euro one thirteen down point one five. European markets must think there's a deal going on with Greece. Germany was up almost four percent. London was up one and three quarters percent. Uh, even Japan followed along at one and a quarter percent. And um, so. Those markets soared, and I thought I saw China down once again, another 6%. But um, there we have it, Al. There we have it. There we another have it. Another day in the markets. You know, it's down 15 bucks, and it's annoying, and the rest of that sort of thing. But it'll go back. We'll have another $15 day up. And what we are seeing is price of gold is just hovering somewhere around 
1200 It doesn't get a whole above, doesn't get a whole lot below, at least not so far. And it just seems to $15 up, $15 down. What do you make of it? Well, I think we're going to... I think we're going to see gold trade between 1150 and uh, you know 1220. Uh, might not be as low as 1150, maybe 1160, but around this 1180. It's been fluctuating, trading between these two marks, and I think this is what we're going to see until uh, we have a little uh, reason to have another little pop in the price of gold. We all know it's been suppressed. We all know it's being manipulated in bulls, and uh, certainly when you have stock markets at 18,000, you know, there's very little interest in gold. You know, people don't see the danger. If they do see the danger, they don't pull their funds out because it's the only place they're making any money on their dividends. You know, some of these companies are paying, you know, three, four, five, seven percent on some of these dividends. So they're willing to uh, keep their money in there, get that little uh, dividend check on a monthly basis and a quarterly basis. And, uh, you know, that's the risk people are willing to take. But for those of you who don't want to play that risk or play that game, they can always put their funds into a real currency like gold and silver. And speaking of currency, Al, last week you had uh, the, the Treasury Secretary and announced, and we talked a little bit about it on this program, they were going to put a woman's portrait on the 10th dollar bill. Well, does she have to be dead before you can put her on the portrait? Well, he didn't. If so, I'm going to suggest I'm going to nominate Hillary. Oh, but that she's going to be dead? Well, it's a requirement. I think I think the way her ego is, she might, willing, she might be willing to fake it just to get her picture on the $10 bill. Well, maybe, it, maybe it's another one of those trans, you know, have transgender, transracial anymore. Idea. Maybe it'll be trans. Yeah, <laughs> there. Now we've got we got a little bit of the male thing, a little, little of the field. Uh, we could make the bill. Uh, you could distinguish the tens from the fives and the twenties and so on. We'll make a pink ten dollar bill. But what else did you say about this? Fortunately, what they'll use is a, a woman who has probably had some sort of an effect on, on women's rights and so forth instead of a woman like Ab- Abigail Adams, who had uh, a lot of impact uh, early on in the country and uh, in the country and Christian and, and rights and morals and, and was a true patriot. So that's the kind yeah, of thing I would like to see. But the whole reason also that I wanted to talk about this Former Federal Reserve Chief uh, Bernanke, um, he wants, you know, he wants to abandon the plan to drop Alexander Hamilton and dump Andrew Jackson from the $20 bill. Bernanke wrote today that he's appalled by the plans to replace Hamilton with a woman. He said uh, that adding a woman is a fine idea, but it shouldn't come at Hamilton. Expense. He called the first Treasury Secretary, without doubt, the best and most foresighted economic policy in U.S. history. By contrast, Jackson, president from 29 to 37, was a man of many unattractive qualities and a poor president. Jackson opposed attempts to establish a U.S. central bank. 
Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I thought, okay, now we get now we get to the heart of uh, you know why he wanted uh, uh, Hamilton dumped, and, or once Jackson dumped over Hamilton. So anyway, I thought that was interesting. No, it's it is interesting, and it's kind of it's interesting from the perspective you think that the Federal Reserve has something better to do than settle accounts with enemies that go back what close to 200 years ago mm-hmm. huh? mm-hmm. I would spear that that would be that'd be a mistake to assume that they still have scores to settle with Andy Jackson and you know on Jackson's uh, tombstone I'm told that he inscribed on his tombstone I stopped the banks so I don't know they four enemies, there's no question about it. A couple of assassination attempts, if I understand correctly, probably by major bankers. Um, and Jackson, of course, you know, you know where we got the, the term OK? And Tell us. His friend of Jackson, and the man was so illiterate that even though he'd been a general in the rest of the sort of thing, he was so illiterate that he thought OK meant all correct. All right? He thought you spelled all with an O and correct with a K. So he would write OK on some of his, he'd read some of these documents and say, OK, all correct. That was where we got the idea. That's where we got the, um, you know, the term OK. Oh. Interesting guy, Old Hickory. Um, uh, undoubtedly tougher than nails. Uh, right? I mean, he wasn't. It wasn't. He wasn't well educated, but on the other hand, he knew what he was doing. He didn't need a profound education to do what he believed to be right, and uh, he must have given him fits back in the day. In fact, if I was up to me, I'd shift him around, maybe put him on the hundred dollar bill. <laughs> we'll put Bernanke on the penny. <laughs> Let's do that. How about we put Ben Bernanke on the penny, and we'll move Andy Jackson up to $100 bill. Put Bernanke on the Continental. <laughs> uh-huh. Here's a Dean's story that uh, I thought you would like, Al. The Supreme Court today ruled that the government can't force raised farmers to give a part of their annual crop for less than it's worth. A victory for conservative groups that hailed the decision as a win for private property rights. And the justices ruled eight to one. And this was a 1940s program. And it was born uh, it was born out of the um, Great Depression. And it allowed the federal officials to seize personal property from farmers without fully compensating them. Yep. Even though the goal was to benefit farmers by stabilizing market prices. And uh, the court sided with uh, farmers Marvin and Laura who claimed they were losing money under a program they called outdated and ineffective. They had been fined $695,000 trying to get around it. Uh, Chief Justice John Roberts said the government, the program was authorized in 1937 that allowed the, to keep prices for raisins and other crops steady by helping to manage the supply. And I guess they put these raisins in a reserve pool to be sold outside in the open market. It. And then they used the, they used them for school lunch programs, or they were given away to charities and foreign governments. Yep. 
Um, I have a copy of the case here in front of me. In fact, I downloaded it earlier today. I haven't had a chance to read much of it, but it does say in 2002-2003, raisin growers were required to set aside 47% of their raisin crop under the reserve requirement. You know what that means, Mel? It means we could get four scoops of raisins with our raisin brand if it wasn't for the government meddling. That's just two. Because the government was taking half the crop. So there. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. But in, they were also, farmers gave up 30% of the crop in 2004 and were paid nothing. Yeah. So, um, um, so no, the court did the right thing. Mm-hmm. The court appears to have done the right thing, which is sometimes almost amazing in itself. But they actually appeared to do the right thing. Although this has been going on since 1937. Yeah. We've had 63, 73, uh, what, years of this? And there's other crops that involves prunes, dates, almonds, cherries, walnuts, spearmint oil. I don't know what other USDA programs that fall into the same sort of uh, um, program. And there was only one dissenter, and that was Justice Sonia Sotomayor. And she said the program did not deprive the horns of all property rights, it just limited the amount of potential income they could earn from it. Oh, you know, it's just like, really? Yeah. I know. It's like, what planet are these people living on? Or where did they come from? You know, it's just, but. you know I saw an interesting article that was actually published in the New York Times on May 24th of last year. And I have no idea how this article, I thought I was looking at a current issue of the of the New York Times. I don't know if someone sent me a link to it or what it was, but I was much amazed. I did not hear about it a year ago, and I haven't heard of it since. And I got the letter, and I thought the, I thought the article was, was you know, in the last week. <clears throat> and then I realized, oh my gosh, it's not. <clears throat> and what the article explains is that the Supreme Court justices have been back and revising their decisions mm-hmm. sometimes as much as fires after the decision is made. And this has been going on since the beginning of this country. And in some instances, the Supreme Court has been going back and revising not only their own decisions, but previous decisions by previous courts. They might be revising decisions that were made 100 years ago or 200 years and cutting a little chunk out and put another piece in there. Um, the Dred Scott case, which is famous to a lot of people, turns out that that Dred Scott case, after it was decided and it was <clears throat> the court issued the decision, one of the uh, justices came back and added 18 pages of his own commentary to the Dred Scott decision, which is a famous case dealing with sort of slavery and whatever. He added 18 pages to this, and the thing about it is the Supreme Court will not admit what segments have been changed. They won't tell us where they are, they won't tell us who did them, and they won't tell us how they've been changed. And the point is that the Supreme Court is actually rewriting the law. There's a little section of a precedent that they don't care for. Well, they can go back and just delete that precedent, or maybe insert a not where there was just previously an is. Um, And the whole thing calls into question the validity of all of the Supreme Court's decisions. 
we don't really know if we've got the decisions available to us right now that were actually the decisions that were made at the time. And this, the only way we can find out if we have a true Supreme Court case decision is we pretty much have to get hold of a hard copy of one of the books that was published at the time and then compare it to the digital copies that are available at Find Law and uh, Westlaw and LexisNexis and so on. Um, this is extraordinarily disturbing. I mean, this is these guys are rewriting our law without giving us notice, without even refusing to tell us, okay, we did it, but we're not going to tell you where. Calls the whole, the whole idea of Supreme Court precedents into question. And from my perspective <clears throat> is if they're going to be in question like that, one of the things we're going to probably see, what, what can we rely on? If we can't rely on the Supreme Court decisions, what can we rely on? And the answer would be the organic law of the United States of America, which includes Declaration of Independence, Articles of Confederation, Northwest Ordinance, and the Constitution of the United States. We all have pretty reliable copies of those documents. All right? So it might be. I mean, it's interesting. Just extraordinary information, extraordinary arguments, um, implications. I don't expect a lot to come of it, but a lot should come of it. The other thing I wanted to touch on before we go to break, the BRICS uh, Bank, they're to commence business on July 7th. They will be launched at the first session of its Board of Governors in Moscow, and Russian officials have confirmed uh, the new development bank will provide a, fa a financing alternative to the World Bank, uh, where the five large emerging markets have sought more clout. Um, the BRICS leaders also announced, of course, uh, the establishment of the BRICS Contingent Reserve Arrangement. And that's a $100 billion fund from which the BRICS member countries will be allowed to draw funds when going through a crisis. Uh, it's going to be headquartered in Shanghai. India has already announced the first president of the bank. And, uh, of course, this has all led up to the uh, um, uh, open membership for non-BRICS countries and, and it coincides with plans for the Asian infrastructure development. Development bank spearheaded by Beijing, and uh, so that is looking to uh, uh, have their uh, first session on July 7th. And I thought this was interesting. The Central Bank of Russia issued a three-ruble silver coin to commemorate the upcoming BRICS summit. Uh, these coins will be on sale at several commercial banks, and, and um, uh, the coin bearing the title. A meeting of the BRICS heads of state, and it represents the growing clout of the group of five as they launch their new financial institutions. So uh, I thought that was interesting. I thought it was interesting that they were able to get it out in just a couple of days. <laughs> I don't know how long they were working on it, but uh, they did an issue. Uh, um, I just thought that was interesting. It's interesting that they'd issue a three-ruble coin. Mm -hmm. I can understand five and ten. And maybe even two. Why do we get a three, a three ones and twos? We get a three ruble coin. That strikes me as mathematically strange. Well, you think I'm not it saying would, it's wrong, but I'm saying it's a little peculiar. You think it would be the same number as the number of states that are connected to it, countries? Yeah. Maybe. 
We'll watch and see. We'll be, we're going to take a break for some commercials, and Melody and I will be back in a moment. Please stay tuned to Financial Survival. or relationship problems have you feeling stressed out? When life is too much to handle, use Apothecary Herbs Emotional Stress Formula. Feel calm and more in control with herbs especially combined to provide the organic nutrition your system needs to help you cope. Complete instructions for maximum benefit and a money-back guarantee. You've waited long enough. Call Apothecary Herbs now. Toll free 866-229-3663. That's 866 866- 229-3663 International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3w.thepowerherbs.com Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. I'm Alfred Adask, here with Melody Cedarstrom on Financial Survival. Programs brought to you by Discount Gold and Silver. 1-800-375-4188. What's next, Melody? 
You know, the U.S. today is going to raise theft of federal personal records with China. Security talks began. They began annual security talks with China, and an official said it plans to raise this uh, directly the breach of the federal government server that resulted in the theft of personal and security clearance records of millions of employees and contractors. Uh, China has openly denied the involvement in the break-in, and uh, of course the Obama administration says, oh, we're confident that China's government, not criminal hackers, were responsible. Now, my big question now, I mean, they're discussing these issues, uh, cybersecurity in their annual meeting, maritime security, military relations, missile defense, nuclear policy, blah, blah, blah. When you start accusing a country of hacking into your system, I mean, it's got to be more than, hey, hey, Joe, hey, bud, you know, you, you quit that. <laughs> and, and the person that you're accusing, the country that you're accusing has got to be um, – I mean, to me, I mean, to, to accuse a country that they're breaking in, stealing personal and security clearance records of millions, millions of employees and contractors, I mean, shouldn't that be a, a fairly severe situation? I mean, or, I mean, nah, everybody's or, doing it, Melody. You mean you, you mean you're not hacking? You're accusing, but you're accusing a country. That's just showbiz. See, we accuse them, and over there they're accusing us of something. And uh, both sides, we need to keep our people in line by posing threats. We have to let them know that there's threats from other people. So you all better do whatever the federal government tells you, because they will protect us from the dreaded Chinese. And the Chinese are doing the same thing. You better do what the Chinese tell you, the government tells you, because if you don't, they can't protect you against the dreaded United States. Yeah, but my point is out there. I mean, it makes... It makes no sense. I mean, if you're hacking into these government programs for stupid employees and, and so forth, their personal information, I mean, wouldn't you think they would? it would be fairly easy to get into their military? Yeah. Or do they already have yeah. all their military? Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, isn't this, you know, shouldn't I saw it be something. more of a... I saw something back in the 1960s, if I recall correctly. I don't think it was any later than the 1970s, but I think it was the 1960s. And in, the United States was building a new embassy in Moscow. At the same time, the Soviet Union was building a new embassy in Washington, D.C. The Soviet Union built its embassy on the highest hill in Washington, D.C. Now, this isn't big time. I mean, it was not like we had mountain peaks up there or something. But the point was, up on that high peak, they had the maximum opportunity to intercept radio communications coming into, coming into Washington, D.C. The United States built its embassy at the lowest spot in Moscow, down the swamp, basically. And they had the least opportunity to capture radio intelligence from the other side. United States knew that the Russians had incorporated uh, listening devices into the beams, the steel beams that were used to build the new embassy in Moscow, into the bricks and the blocks and whatever else. They had The place was completely wired where they could hear anything that went on inside the United States embassy. Nobody cared. They don't care what the Russians know, knew about us. And we didn't care, and, and the Russians didn't care what we knew about them particularly. What this was about was 
maintaining an excuse to not tell your own people what your government is up to. The Russians or the Soviet Union at the time used the United States as an excuse. Oh, gee, we can't tell all you dumb Russians what's going on here because, golly, we've got to keep it secret to protect you against the evil United States. The United States does the same thing. We use our adversaries as an excuse to control the primary threat to our government. And what is the primary threat to our government, to the government of the Soviet Union, the government of Russia? It's the people of the United States or the people of the Soviet Union or the people of Russia. Primary threat to every government is its own people. And that's why they say, ooh, look at the boogeyman. Look at the boogeyman. Look at the boogeyman. The threat, a primary threat, if the people ever knew what was going on, I think it was Henry Ford. It was attributed to Ford. He talked about the monetary system. And this goes back in a century ago, basically. He said if the American people understood the monetary system, the banking system in this country, there'd be a revolution and, a, and an overthrow. The following morning it'd start tomorrow morning says so good thing they don't understand your government is not trying to protect is not trying to secure its information against the chinese they just use that as an excuse to keep you folks in the dark well here's something i found interesting it was the usa and this might be a common occurrence the usa today uh, the uh, author of the article was Jim Michaels, and it's about with a shortage of U.S. Navy ships, the Marine Corps is exploring a plan to deploy its forces aboard foreign vessels. Oh, that's ins- great. How about ensure, Carnival Cruise Line? Yeah, to ensure... That, <laughs> that's, that's probably the funniest thing you said, Al, in a long there time. In a long time, I'd have yeah. to admit that's Getting there is half the fun. You join the Marine Corps, and you will be deployed on a Carnival cruise line. You know? But this is so they can respond quickly to global crises around Europe and Western Africa. The initiative is a stopgap way to deploy Marines aboard ships overseas until more American vessels are available. Uh, let's see. Uh, they, they talk of, yeah, I know. I know. I mean, we've had. I didn't know we had a shortage since World War II. We've had enough, and now all of a sudden we're short on enough vessels. How many Marines are we going to land, and where are we going to land them? What are they planning for here? The Marines have been working with Spain, Italy, the United Kingdom, and other close allies to determine the suitability of the foreign ships for U.S. personnel and aircraft. Uh, The units would be designed for limited operations and not uh, major amphibious assaults. A ground force, they're talking about 100 to 120, would be deployed. uh, 120 men? Yeah. And they need to go buy special boats? Can't they buy a, can't they buy, I don't know. There must be something you could buy that will carry 100 people across the ocean. Here it says, the U.S. Navy has 30 amphibious ships, but says it needs 38 to fulfill war-fighting requirements. Mm-hmm. It won't reach that level until 2028 because of budget constraints. Yeah, that's the point to all of this. This ultimately is a reflection of the fact the government's going broke. Broke. That's what the problem yep. is. And they're cutting back, for the moment, they're cutting back on the military, which has been, you know, sacred cow here for a considerable period of time, for, you know, since World War II anyway. Um, and just recently, in the last decade or so, it's no longer quite as sacred as it's been in the past. And the day is going to come when, what else is sacred, Melody? So-so security. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. 
you're going to be capable of working that out before it's done, where you're going to have to be 85 before you can retire, and that'll be on half. And if you want the full amount, you'll have to be 90. And the poor Greeks are unhappy because they're talking about raising their, what, 54 to 56? Yeah, I understand. (laughs) And we're going to be 100. But the one more thing to this article, it says, in addition to, and I don't know, in addition to technical requirements, such as t- testing the ability of the ships to carry U.S. article uh, aircraft and equipment, they would have to reach agreement separately with individuals or, or operate under NATO authorities. Well, Just, you know, this is one of the problems. We've got this privatized government where we have contracted out a lot of governmental obligations to private corporations. And they are considering doing the same thing with hauling Marines to some foreign foreign shore. Look, if you're going to have a war, if you're getting involved in this stuff, it seems to me that you ought to be able to fight the war with your own ships and planes and tanks. Shall we cut a deal with Russia? Or maybe we could borrow, could I borrow a battalion of tanks we're going to invade. We've got another country to invade here. We're a little short. Uh, Mr. Putin, could we borrow a battalion of tanks? It gets a little weird. If you're going to have a war, you got to at least fight it with your own men and your own equipment. And if you're not going to fight with your own men and equipment, you put yourself in a position of jeopardy. You are depending. You're going to sign a contract with who? To supply ships to move our Marines to where? And what happens if the situation changes over the course of the next several years and we sign a contract with Spain to move people to Africa and Spain and subsequently engage and enters into some sort of a treaty with Africa and now we can't rely on Spain to haul our men to Africa and instead of shooting, we'll take them to court. Maybe that's maybe it's a good thing, Melody. We'll just... We'll settle all our dis- our disputes in court rather than on the battlefield. What do you think? Maybe. Maybe. I don't know, but I just uh, I thought that was you know, another. It just needed some attention. A sign of the times, mm-hmm. and you know, it, it's a sign that things are curiouser and curiouser. Yeah. They are just stranger and stranger, and the reason is because the government is going broke. And why is the government going broke? In large measure, because the government has insisted on giving us a fiat currency, and now they're in a position where they can't effectively raise taxes much more on the American people, and they can't borrow much more because they're already perceived to be legally insolvent, and it's more difficult to find lenders willing to lend the government, so where are they going to find the money? And the answer is, they're not, which means they're going to actually have to cut back. Which, who knows, silver silver lining, maybe maybe it's a good thing. You know, less government, uh, in the end, less government may be better, good thing for all of us. So. Ultimately, it could be better. But, uh, but we have real estate is saying it's got hot again. Sales are on pace for the best year since 2007. They say first-time buyers are streaming back into the market. But what I found interesting about the report was that they're going in there because they're concerned that they're going to be priced out of the market by rising mortgage rates. And uh, rates haven't even risen yet. They haven't even raised the rates yet. And uh, I can only imagine um, this economy when rates 
get to three and a half and four percent. So, um, so this is uh, why you're seeing the mad dash. It's because they can't afford higher rates. So once those rates begin rising, that's one part of the sector of the economy that will just come to a screeching halt, and that's home buyers. Well, it's been the rates have been rising according to some reports, just because people have been investing in the homes. Yeah, well, just they've wait. been taking. Yeah, I understand. They've just uh, they think this. It's been artificially. I think they said that the price of homes was going up something sixteen percent at the same time that American wages had gone up something like four percent. I don't remember mm-hmm. the time frame, but five years since two thousand eight, whatever it was, I don't recall. Prices are up sixteen percent, but income is only up four percent. All right. Well, it doesn't take a genius to figure out. Look, on average. The main, the middle class, if they're only getting a four percent raise, they can't continue to chase homes that are going up at sixteen percent. Uh, there's going to be a moment when people finally say, once again, gee, I can't afford these house, this house. I'm going to have to abandon it. It's underwater. You know, it looks to me like we'll watch and see what happens. It's cause for a certain amount of celebration right now because it'll put more people to work as we build more homes, but they tend to be on the expensive side. And almost inevitably, it's like giving liar loans to people who are living in poverty and saying, go ahead, tell us you make $100,000. We'll believe you, $100,000 a year, and we'll lend you the money because the government will buy the loan from us as soon as we as soon as soon we ink the deal so we're covered. We make ours, and uh, whatever happens after that is between you and the government. We're seeing something like that right now, where it's not quite the same as liar loans, but people who are perhaps not really qualified are buying more homes. We'll watch and see. Um, here's an article that's a little bit along those lines. Bureau of Labor Statistics releases May inflation stats. May's monthly price increase, uh, monthly prices increase 0.51%, but the annual inflation rate was still a negative 0.04%. Okay? We have been, and they go on to say, we've had this is the fifth um, deflationary month in a row. When we're talking about negative inflation, we are talking about deflation. We are have now in the fifth deflationary month in a row. And the reason I mention this is because if you are going to borrow money in a period of deflation, you're going to have to pay off your debt with more valuable dollars. Now, it's hard to say. We don't know how far this deflation is going to go or how significant it's going to be in terms of magnitude. But nevertheless, we've had five deflationary months in a row, according to Bureau of Labor Statistics. And this suggests that we might have six or seven before we're done, or maybe more than that. Um, It is a signal that if we're going into deflation... Sensible people probably, they need to think more than once about whether they want to take out any loans. If they have to be pay, repaying their dollars with more expensive dollars, you borrow $100,000 today. When you pay it back, you pay back $100,000, but the dollars are worth $110,000. you are losing 10 
$10,000 purchasing power, and it's kind of an invisible loss, but I guarantee it's there and it's real. You can't see it on the paperwork, but it's there, and it will tend to push you into bankruptcy if you borrow that money. So insofar as people are flocking into the housing industry right now, they see that perhaps interest rates are going up. But I wonder if they're paying much attention to whether we are likely to continue on into more deflation or not. I wonder if they're factoring that into their decision. What do you think, Melody? Are they or are they not? Or should we discuss that when we return from a we should, We're ready to go to break. I'm, okay. Let's take our break for our second bundle of commercials. I'm Alfred Addis here with Melody Cedarstrom on Financial Survival, and we'll be back. Please stay tuned. condition and emergency rooms and medical doctors are not an option, you need our emergency heart attack kit. Five concentrated liquid formulas enter the system in 60 seconds to protect your heart muscle, strengthen heartbeat, increase circulation, relieve pain, and make breathing easier. When seconds count, you want all the help you can get with our emergency heart attack kit. Easy to use and portable in a one-pound compact kit for your purse, briefcase, or car. Call Apothecary Herbs now for your emergency heart attack kit, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the three www.thepowerherbs.com. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. I'm Alfred Addis, here with Melody Cedars, Journal on Financial Survival. What's next, Melody? Oh, we wanted to finish up the um, your question. Could you repeat the question, please? No, I can't remember the question, Melody, but I'll tell you, I can, I can do something yeah. instead. It's like I can no longer balance a ball on my nose, but I can... You yeah. know, I, 
I can balance a book on the top of my head. It's it's part of my posture training. Understand? Here's something from the same article I was reading from on uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics and noting that we've had five months of deflation. But they go back also and they compare this to cumulative inflation. All right? And they have a graph here, which you folks can't see, of course, but the graph is interesting, and I'll tell you why. <clears throat> it calculates the total amount of inflation we've had from from 1913 to this year, 20, 2015. So we've had almost one century of inflation. <clears throat> and in that time, we've had 2,326% inflation in what translates into 98 years. This means that something that cost $100 in 1913 would now cost $2,426. Huh? And if you could see the graph that's here, you would also see that they started out in 1913 at 0% inflation, and then they, they just kind of bounced along until 1940 without much difference in, in inflation. And then starting about 1940, it starts to jump, and that's shortly after we went off to the domestic gold standard. And it goes up at an angle of maybe 10 degrees on the graph. And then at just after 1970, 71, all of a sudden it starts moving up at about a 50, 55 degree angle, maybe 60 degree angle. All right. And what happened in 1971, thereabouts, we went completely off the gold standard um, internationally. We went off the gold standard domestically, 1934. We went off the gold standard internationally, 1971. Um, and that's when the inflation really took off and started fire. The cumulative inflation as of 1971 or thereabouts, from 1913 to 1971, translates into, what, 57 years or something like that, 58 years. Cumulative inflation was 306%. All right? Not so bad. But from 1971 on until today, it's gone up to 2,328%, meaning we essentially had 2,000% inflation in the last 45 years. In your lifetime, folks. You know, I talk about this once in a while on the program, but you'll see movies, uh, TV dramas, rest that Perry Mason is one that I kind of enjoy from time to time. And you'll see people that are suing over $20,000 or whatever. Today, it's that's regarded as triviality. But back then, when they were making those black and white movies, the $20,000 was 20,000 silver dollars, right? Which would be equivalent to at least $400,000 today. You can look back and you can see how the monetary system has changed. I remember my first job. Back about 1958, 59, somewhere in there, I don't remember exactly. I was in junior high, <clears throat> probably about 1958, seventh grade, something like that. I don't recall it exactly. so long ago. Yeah, it seems like it, but it's really not. Melody. No, it isn't. You'll see. Um, first job, 85 cents an hour. And I was just working an hour or two every night after school. 
And the average person sit back and say, 85 cents an hour? Why do you even bother going to the job? Why would anyone work for 85 cents an hour? 85 cents an hour back then was 85% of a silver dollar. You understand? Today, that would be the equivalent of me making something like $16, $17 per hour as a seventh grade kid. From that perspective, you can see that, yeah, working a couple hours after school, you could make the equivalent of $35, $40 in today's money. So it became, it was a very sensible thing to take a job for $0.85 cents an hour. That was a good deal. And here we are today. It illustrates that although we may have had five months in deflation recently, um, it illustrates we've had long-term inflation in this country, and it has been huge. It's been massive. Back then, you could work. You understand that? Minimum wage, they're talking, oh, we need a $15 minimum wage. Where is that? It's less than I was making when I was a, a seventh grader working a couple hours after school just sweeping up in a garage. It gives you a perspective on where this country is, where it's been. It gives you a perspective on where it's going. Yeah. You see those numbers pre-68, think in terms, you see those dollars multiplying by 20 or 25. That's, that gives you a real perspective on what the money was if you're looking at one of those older movies. You see, well, we have had extraordinary inflation. I don't know that we've made any gains. We're sitting, about, sitting back and they say, oh, we need $15 an hour minimum wage. Well, all right, that's probably okay. I don't have a complaint with it. But how is that better than $0.85 cents an hour back when I was a kid? And, in fact, it's probably not as good. Well, that's the wage they need. 85 cents an hour back when I was a kid, then grown men are making it 15 bucks an hour today. Well, you're using the $15 mark as a wage that they want, but what they're really getting paid is seven, eight, nine dollars So well, by that's, the time what really, gets that's, that's what really... Uh, no, they're getting paid seven and eight. Minimum wage is what, seven bucks? So... But these people want fifteen dollars. They're not getting paid fifteen dollars yet. They no, want fifteen dollars. Well, so some of put them it are into real well, some, but the ones that want the fifteen dollars in their place, it's much worse as they're only getting paid nine dollars or ten dollars. So that really puts it into perspective. Hmm. We've been beaten up and taken advantage and it's it's how do you get taken advantage? Somebody comes up and says, We're gonna give you a five hundred dollar a month Bonus. And we say, yay, $500 a month. But at the same time, inflation has just gone up by 50%. Now, I'm just pulling a number out of the hat here. How are you money ahead or money behind? You know, the government acts as if it's doing us a favor by giving us $15 an hour minimum wage. If the government wanted to do us a favor, they wouldn't have put us, subjected us to all of this inflation in the first place. And we could still be working for $0.85 cents an hour. And be glad to have it. You understand? And one of the one th what are one of the main who's one of the main beneficiaries of people who are making fifteen dollars an hour rather than eighty five cents an hour? And the answer is the Internal Revenue Service and the income tax. What was my tax liability on making eighty five cents an hour back in the day? Not much. 
What's my tax liability on making 15 bucks an hour? The government, by raising our rates, by inflating the currency, by causing us to make more dollars and more dollars that are worth less and less, but more dollars numerically, they increase the amount of money they can claim under income tax. Who's growing thanks to inflation? Government. You know, and it's not a surprise, and it's not just hyperbole. Why does government grow? Because inflation favors debtors. Deflation favors creditors. It's terrible. Deflation is terrible for debtors. It's great for creditors. They're getting paid back with more expensive dollars. Inflation favors debtors while they rob the creditors. Creditors are getting repaid with cheaper dollars. They're getting beat out of their money. They're being, getting beat out of the purchasing power. They get it, they borrow, they lend $100,000, they get 100000 back, but the, by the time they get their 100000 back, it's only worth $90,000 in terms of purchasing power. Inflation favors debtors. Who's the biggest debtor in the world? Government of the United States. Right? It just absolutely follows. Of course the government wants inflation. They want it to knock down the real value of its debt. They are the world's biggest debtor. They want inflation, inflation, inflation. And what they're doing is they've seen five months of deflation. This has to be very disturbing for them. They're looking for 2% a year. And according to the report we have from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, we actually have deflation, net deflation over the course of the last year. All right. What are we going to do about that, Melody? Can the government, how much deflation can the government survive before it has to admit that it can't pay its debts? I'm not sure anyone knows that number, Al. I understand. I understand. I don't know it either, but the point is there is a number. You know, and I'm not so sure it's a matter of what the Federal Reserve can handle. It's a matter of, you know, again, the the confidence game worldwide. And um, so... Um, you know, they might be able to handle more, but if there's that particular event or something that uh, causes the pressure and the elimination of that confidence of the system, it doesn't matter because it will still come crashing down. Well, but, um, and it's got to happen sooner or later. And it's one of the things that, you know, if anyone looks into this, the average American doesn't have any understanding of money other than how to count it. But if you do a little study... And you do a little research, you begin to realize that all fiat currencies go boom sooner or later. They fall down, go boom. All right? They disappear, they cease to work. Much like the Zimbabwean dollar. People listening to this program are probably familiar with what happened to Zimbabwean dollar, the incredible hyperinflation. At times, I don't know if it was a billion percent or more a year, but it was just fantastic amounts of inflation. And the price of the currency was changing before your eyes. If you took a Zimbabwean dollar, you expected as you accepted it as payment for something today. You couldn't wait till tomorrow to, to use it to buy something else. You had to sell it almost inst- use that use that Zimbabwean dollar almost instantly to get something else, something tangible from someone else. I don't care what they're selling. Get something tangible. Buy some cigars. Buy a table. Buy a desk. Buy some food. Buy a car. Buy something. But something tangible. Get rid of that paper. We're going to see a moment like that. It is inevitable when you're dealing with, well, I won't say in a moment like Zimbabwe per se, but we're still going to see all fiat currencies die. They fold up under the weight of their own debt. 
And everybody who's still holding them, they lose their assets. All right? They're holding their wealth in in terms of fiat currency or paper debt instruments denominated in the fiat currency. When that fiat dollar dies, the paper debt instruments like stocks, bonds, pension funds, savings accounts, all of them just become essentially worthless or at least devalued to the point where they're nearly worthless. Devalued by who knows, at least 50%, probably 80 or 90%, maybe more than that. We don't know when that's going to happen, but we do know that it's going to happen. Right? It's going to happen. might happen this year, might happen in, who knows, five years from now. I don't know. But because we don't know, it's one of the reasons why, if you're sensible, you take however much money that you have, how much currency you have, and you try to get it, in, you try to protect your wealth. Your wealth is in that currency. Your wealth is in those paper debt instruments. You try to protect your wealth by saying, hmm, do I want to keep my wealth in the form of a paper debt instrument that I know will inevitably, maybe this year, maybe five years from now, don't know when, but it's going to come to a point where it's virtually worthless. Do I want to run that risk right now, or do I want to get some gold or silver? Because if I do, my wealth will be protected. and We will have an opportunity to, when the rest of the world is, is digging in garbage cans looking for something to eat. Those of you who have stored your wealth in the form of a medium that is, uh, that is not destroyed by inflation, deflation, or government manipulation, that's your wealth in that physical, tangible form of gold or silver. You know, there's other physical forms that you can do. You can do land. You can do a bunch of different things. But in terms of liquidity, Something that you can spend and use. Hard to beat gold and silver if push comes to shove, and that's what we think is going to happen. Push is going to come to shove. And when it does, those of you holding on to paper debt instruments are going to be, you know, in my opinion, my opinion, you're going to be hurting. And those of you who have saved your wealth, and preserved it in the form of gold or silver, you're going to be saying, huh, 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 I think we can get through. I think we've got enough to make it. Hmm? We are about out of time for our Monday program. I want to thank all of you for listening. I'm Alfred Addis here with Melody Cedarstrom on Financial Survival. We'll be back tomorrow. In the meantime, with the good Lord bless you, me, Melody, and Frank, the producer. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. and emergency rooms and medical doctors are not an option, you need our emergency heart attack kit. 
five concentrated liquid formulas enter the system in 60 seconds to protect your heart muscle, strengthen heartbeat, increase circulation, relieve pain, and make breathing easier. When seconds count, you want all the help you can get with our emergency heart attack kit. Easy to use and portable in a one-pound compact kit for your purse, briefcase, or car. Call Apothecary Herbs now for your emergency heart attack kit toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom Pandemics will be a part of our future. The question is, how do we protect ourselves? Are you willing to put your trust in untested vaccine, hoping it kills mutating viruses? Remember, in 1976, health officials tried to inoculate Americans with swine flu, and there was a 300% death rate for those inoculated, and millions were paid out in damages. God gave you a sophisticated immune system, and in times of need, you can make it 10 times stronger. So there's no need to panic. Just get prepared. Call Apothecary Herbs to order your upgraded pandemic kit. You will have eight professional strength formulas offering broad-spectrum immune-boosting protection. Take a stand. Have a plan. Have peace and request your pandemic kit today. Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663, or online, thepowerherbs.com. That's 866-229-3663, or thepowerherbs.com. Don't make the aspirin mistake. Aspirin was discovered by mistake during World War II and suppresses your immune system and prevents blood clotting. Don't expose your body to risk when you can use a natural inflammation and pain reliever called Extra Strength Pain Relief by Apothecary Herbs. Discover the power this formula has with Salicin to enter the system in 60 seconds to work hard and relieve pain for 12 hours. Whether it's arthritis, sports injury, or flu, you can relieve aches, pain, and swelling with our Extra Strength Pain Relief Formula. Call Apothecary Herbs now, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom One, two, three. I'm your resident herbalist, Wendy Wilson. Hope you had a great day. We're here to empower you. That's what we're going to do. Magical engineer Frank and I are ready to go. Thanks for joining us here on American Voice Radio. One of the best networks, let me tell you. I've been on a few. (laughs) 
Thank you, Frank. Well, we're going to be talking about uh, some, well, one herb that has uh, some very uh, special benefits, and several of them, actually. Uh, also, we're going to talk about, you know, if you're searching for health out there, you know, if you're on the Internet and you're looking around for help with issues, health issues and stuff, we're going to kind of tap into what people are searching for and where they're finding their help. Um, also, we may have time to talk about some common mistakes and maybe some supplement secrets. We'll see how much time we have. Always oh, got a bunch of stuff here to talk about. And, um, you know, that's what we do. Empowerment. And we have a quack report. But before we get to all that great stuff, big salute and semper fi to our righteous men and women in uniform. Lifting them up in prayer. I'm listening to all of America up in prayer. You know what I'm praying for? Righteous leadership. I'm praying for men of valor with understanding and knowledge. And that means they know the Lord, you know. So they got morals. They got righteousness. And, you know, Psalms 92 says the righteous flourish like palm trees and are like the cedars of Lebanon, big and strong and tall and majestic. You know, you, you keep your head held high because, you know, you're good. You're a good person. We need good people in leadership in this land. So we're supposed to seek the Lord's face in Isaiah 59 and ask for those things. We're supposed to plead for righteousness and truth, you know. Like, we don't have enough of that. So, seek the Lord's face, mind the time, draw near unto him, because the time grows short. Without further ado, let's do the quack report. Thanks, Frank. Oh, I don't know if the world's ready for this. Uh, Telegraph over in the U.K. says, um, you know, the the, the contraceptive uh, pill, the, the pill that you know, came about for women. Uh, well, now it's, they're trying to develop this male pill, and it's a coming, mm-hmm. according to the report. Uh, they are developing new forms of contraception, but for men. So uh, they estimate it's going to hit the market between 2018 and 2020. And uh, one of them is called Vasagel. It's a non-hormonal male contraceptive. Um, medical research organization called Paramus Foundation owns the rights to this thing. Um, it is poised at the FDA's doorstep waiting approval. Um, it's estimated that it will be on the market here in the United States in 2018. Um, and then they have some injectable uh, versions of male contraceptive um, and they and and it's and it's being promoted that at least half the male population will use it. Yeah, it's it, the advantage is that um, they say it will block uh, sperm and other fluids. Uh, other fluids will be able to pass flu- through, but not the sperm. So they said it will reduce the risk of pain from back pressure. Um, also, will reduce the need for a vasectomy. They say, and. Uh, it, it, and um, it's also going to be very popular among men seeking a permanent contraceptive option. Uh-huh. Now, yet another one that they're in development is another non-hormonal contraceptive. Uh, it's in phase two of human trials in Indonesia. And uh, this method prevents sperm's ability to fertilize an egg by blocking its ability to swim. Can't go anywhere. So uh, we, we've got a lot of things here. There's like 
half a dozen different male contraceptive drugs on the horizon, so get ready for that. And last but not least in the quack report, hmm, neuroscientists think they've captured the moment that our brain records an idea, you know, the light bulb going off kind of thing. It's uh, They use some brain imaging technology to get a glimpse into how our With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.